Ladies and gentlemen, our next event of the evening is a one-fall match with a 60-minute time limit. This podcast is a member of the Place to Be Nation family. Visit us at placetobenation.com, your pop culture home. All right, and welcome to another edition of Where the Big Boys Play. How are you doing, Chad? Doing pretty good. How are you, Parv? Good, yeah, pretty good. And uh, we have a, uh, a guest with us uh, this week to tackle Capital Combat, Peter. Pete F on the boards. How are you doing, Pete? I'm doing good, thank you. And, uh, well, given that there's another Pete, shall we keep on calling you Peter? Uh, that, that's okay. I, Pete's not uh, in on this one, but yeah, just for <laughs> consistency's sake. All right. Well, uh, last time out, uh, we did the big five O Chad, the, uh, the, uh, the fantasy booking. How do you think that went? Um, it was actually a lot of fun. I was a little apprehensive going into that show, but, uh, both from, uh, my interest standpoint and from a listener standpoint, but I think it came off, uh, well on both ends, especially from my interest. I, I mean, I can't speak for everybody else that listened to the show. We did get some good feedback, but, uh, but my interest in doing something like that, I thought was a lot of fun. I mean, I'm somebody that does participate in fantasy football, uh, pro football NFL, but, um, this was this was a lot of fun to do and kind of added in a wrestling wrinkle to that sort of concept and I enjoyed it. Yeah, and I, I've seen people on the boards talk about setting up a fantasy league and uh, uh, I've seen uh, maybe one or two other podcasts uh, uh, thinking about using this concept themselves. So, uh, fine, good, <laughs> um, and you can still vote on that, right, Chad? Uh, up until up until the Clash Eleven show. Yeah, the voting's still open for that, so, uh, I mean, it is a long show, and you can kind of, I think, break it into a couple of different segments, so if you're still working your way through, don't worry, you still have probably at least another week or so uh, to vote on that and pick your favorite. Yeah, and no, I mean, at the moment, uh, somehow Brad is uh, winning. I don't, I don't really understand that. But, uh, <laughs> I mean, Christ, he, he booked evil Jim Hearn as, as, his, uh, as his main villain. There. Christ almighty. Um, all right, well, we've got, a lot to, we've, got a lot to, we've got a lot to get through. Uh, back to business as usual for us now, Chad. B-A-U. Uh, yeah, we are uh, plowing ahead. The next few shows will be uh, some of our old standards where we just go chronologically with uh, now WCW. I guess we can say no more NWA hardly. Yeah, well, uh, I mean, it, I've still got NWA in my notes, but yeah, I, I guess we're in that weird transition phase. But it is pretty much WCW at this point. Um, before we get into this, now, Pete, I know you did the AWA show with us, um, but do you want to give us a, a, just a very quick rundown of your uh, background as a fan? Uh, yeah, I got into wrestling uh, through my dad, who was a fan going uh, way back in the 1950s. Um, all of us are born and raised in Columbus, Ohio, uh, which is not really a hotbed of wrestling. Um, it had its own promotion in the 1960s, uh, promoted by a guy named Al Haft, who 
booked around uh, Buddy Rogers as his lead babyface. But after that, um, it was the territory of the Sheiks, which is usually considered the worst of the major territories. Um, um, growing up, I was a WWF guy. Um, I'd like to say I was, you know, a Southern Territory Crockett fan, but uh, as a little kid in the 80s, it was Hogan and stuff like that that appealed to me. Um, I did have a, a tangential or a, a fringe view of what else, what else was going on, and that got bigger and bigger as the 90s came along, and um, I got more disillusioned with the WWF, with the Warrior push, um, and people can read my thoughts on that on the 1990 yearbook threads. And then I started getting into the after magazines around 1990, 91, and reading about stuff like, especially Memphis, opened up this entire new world of this just the craziest shit I've ever heard of with, you know, title changes happening weekly and people turning babyface and heel and the moon dogs tearing things up. And um, that's what's piqued my interest in, in trying to find out as about wrestling from as many widespread areas as I can, which has sort of uh, reemerged with, with the 1990 yearbook and me going through the 1990s yearbooks, um, trying to find out about Lucha, trying to find out about uh, British wrestling from the 80s and 90s and stuff like that. So it's the WWF fan growing up, and that's what I identified with. But um, I'm, I'm trying to identify as a fan of as much different types of wrestling as possible. Great. And uh, when you mentioned the Sheiks there, is that, uh, is that the Detroit promotion? Did that yes. run uh, Ohio? That, that was, yeah, Ohio is his territory until about the early 80s when it actually became a stop on Georgia Championship Wrestling um, when, they, when they went national. Yeah, I mean, one of the things, I, you mentioned the, uh, the Aptomags there. One of the things I always remember being a kid reading those, uh, reading those in the early uh, 90s was um, just how much bloody photos you'd you'd find you know <laughs> you'd always yeah. see these amazing looking matches with uh you know it typically be actually flair covered in blood um and i'd be wondering like what where's it where was this going on you know um but uh th- that was uh really exciting as a kid because uh, i mean here in the uk i just had no chance of watching you know 99 percent of it right so um yeah. that i it really helped me develop as a fan but i hear a lot of people um one last thing I was going to ask you, uh, Peter, is that um, Ether Pete has talked about being a kind of uh, living in a time capsule, that he, he has like a cutoff point and uh, he mainly just watches old wrestling. Do you watch yeah, that's the, me too. Do you watch the current product at all? Uh, I follow what's going on uh, to some degree. Um, I went to college in 1990 and uh, I actually was in a dorm room that did not get... Um, USA or TNN. That was right around the time Raw was switching. So I've had a phase of not of Monday night no longer becoming an appointment uh, time for wrestling. And then uh, I guess Vince is always at his most enjoyable when he's fighting for something. And once he bought out WCW, he had nothing. He's Alexander the Great. He had no more worlds to conquer. So uh, <laughs> that's where my that's where my disillusionment of the product began. And then you had Triple H running roughshod over everybody and. I, I get I know what's going on now with Daniel Bryan and the bad for business storyline, but it's no longer it hasn't been appointment viewing for me in over a decade, really. Yeah, I think a lot a lot of people tapped out around the same sort of time. Not to run down the modern product, uh, I just have no interest. Uh, Chad, yeah, you got any uh, questions uh, for Peter here? I, I've got one more. Um, the only thing i wanted to ask him about is when he first started kind of uh lurking around death valley driver 
and then on to uh, pro wrestling only those type of message boards because I first noticed Pete uh, commenting on some of the 80s threads uh, I know he's done a lot of the 80s sets and he was usually one of the first couple of uh, posts there and he has a great uh I, th- I think it's the avatar that won me over. He had a great, a bloody avatar for a long time. Yeah. Um, yeah. But then, uh, but then on pro wrestling only, he started dipping into the yearbooks and had some really astute thoughts on all the stuff going on there. And that's when I really took notice and started interacting, I guess, with him more. But uh, just in general, when did you start uh, kind of lurking around and then posting on Death Valley Driver and stuff? <laughs> I've been lurking on Death Valley Driver for a really long time, back in the old green board, um, yeah, 1990s type, uh, where you had to click on each individual reply to see a whole thread. Days. Yeah, yeah, uh, I actually remember that too. So yeah, um, and I, I remember reading the reports on the old Rex Sport Pro Wrestling News Group. Um, I've been posting on the Wrestling Classics board for oh, quite a while. Um, that's probably where I'm most active, but. Uh, I was working on pro wrestling only right around the time that that board launched. It used to be called, uh, I think, New Millennium Blues. Yes. And yeah. uh, I really started posting in earnest, though, when the 1990 yearbook came out, because I figured that was the perfect jumping off point to watching these uh, to watching these sets. So, yeah, posted in earnest with the 80 sets on Death Valley Driver and with the yearbook uh sets on the pro wrestling only board yeah and have you done have you done all the 80 sets or which 80 sets have you yes. competed yeah yeah yes. I thought so. okay yeah and well of course the uh the 80s youtube watching as we as we're saying these days uh yeah um i just wondered like you two are pretty much i always call chad the machine for how quickly he uh you know plows through this footage but you're one of the few guys who seems to be even faster than him uh peter did do you um when you see uh, Soup Twenty Three posting there, do you uh, do you ever does he ever spur you on to? We, to... we we did have kind of a race to see who could finish the ninety uh, yearbook thread yearbook uh, first, and, and I think I won that one. Yeah, um, you did. And I, I, now I've <laughs> now I've gone through ni- now I've gone through ninety one, and I'm almost done with ninety two as well. But um, I've I've only watched one match on the Lucha set, so I've got a ways to go on that. Yeah, well, um, my final question here, Peter. Did you say you went to college in 1990? Are you older than Johnny Sorrow, man? No, 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 2000. <laughs> oh, I right, said okay. 1990, I misspoke. That's Sorry. 2000. 2000, I was, I was just about <laughs> to say. I mean, um, okay, so you don't have any memories of uh, Tony Gurria as a nine-year-old or anything like that? <laughs> I, I do remember Tony Gurria when he in his JTTS days. He was, a, <laughs> he, it, yeah, at the tail end of his career. It's time for the Wrestling Observer Extra. Wrestling Observer Extra. With Dave Meltzer. Okay, well, uh, we've got a lot of stuff uh, to get through. There's actually been three months between um, our last show, Wrestle War 90, and Capital Combat. That's not three months. Actually, Chad, has it been three months for us? Uh, I don't think it's been quite three months, but yeah, it's actually been a literal three months in 1990 between the two shows. Yeah, so that, uh, Wrestle War was February uh, 1990, and this is towards the tail end of May. Um, so there's a huge amount of Observer stuff that I'm going to try to get through uh, as quickly as we can. Um, and because of that, sorry where the big boys play fans, but um, Gordon Soley report is going to have to wait until uh, until Clash 11. So uh, <laughs> <laughs> he's going to Gordon's going to take a week off. He's got his hands full here with uh, with Robocop anyway, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so so March to March a fifth newsletter. Um, and 
the big news, as we touched on with uh, with Charles last time, was uh, Ric Flair resigned uh, as chairman of the NWA Booking Committee after seven months. Um, now, I always hear that he was fired, but apparently he resigned. Um, was that a case of being pushed before he was uh, was being of walking before he was pushed? I, I I think I think that may be a case of uh, what you see. I don't know if this is typical in uh, English sports part, but a lot of times you kind of in sports and stuff like that here you have the we'll fire you, but we'll give you I guess the dignity to resign first. So right, yeah, well, you know, I, I mean, I mean, in football you get the weird the weasel phrase by mutual consent um sometimes but a lot yeah. of the t- a lot of the time the managers wait to, uh, wait until they're sacked because they get a massive uh massive payoff you know they get sometimes five right. six, ten million pounds just for yeah yeah that's consent. part of it too i mean <laughs> i mean i mean sometimes here in u.s you have some glorious firings like uh Recently, the coach of University of Southern California, Wayne Kiffin, he got fired uh, loading loading up on the team bus. They actually like uh, kicked him off the bus. This just <laughs> happened a couple weeks ago, in a kind of glorious scene. But uh, but yeah, sometimes you also get the he resigned, uh, but he was probably gonna get canned. Right. Um, well, uh, here uh, Melter says that um, uh, Flair's time in charge saw an upswing in TV ratings but also a major upswing, upswing in major intercompany divisiveness um, and on stress on Ric Flair himself. Uh, he says that Flair was constantly second-guessed during his time in uh, charge. So we have a new look booking committee, um, which will be, for the time being, Evil Jim Hurd, Jim, Bo- <laughs> Jim Barnett, Kevin Sullivan, Terry Funk, and uh, Jim Cornette, with the possibility of Eddie Gilbert joining them soon. Um he says, traditionally, it's been hard for wrestlers to go from bookers back to being one of the boys. But um, in this case, it's more like removing an albatross from around Flair's neck. Um, even though he didn't let it kind of affect his in-ring performances, sooner or later, the strain would have uh, told. Um, yeah, do you detect much of like a change of direction under Flair, Chad or, or, or Peter, when you've been watching this stuff? Is there anything distinctively Ric Flairish about any of the booking? I mean, I do think you see maybe not as much distinctive Ric Flair as as much as you see distinctive uh, like Kevin Sullivan and then Ole Anderson as we get <laughs> later on in the year. There's some definite distinctive uh, right. traits that are not exactly positive. And then in 1991 when Dusty does come back, I think you can definitely see some of his uh, mid eighties kind of favorite type of things come back to haunt him in 1991. I mean, Flair as a booker overall seems kind of, uh, I mean, very strange in the fact that he doesn't seem to have that much of a identity as a booker. Like I don't seem to have that much of an identity of him as a booker, but I really enjoyed the time period that he was actually kind of the guy in charge so yeah. uh, I'd like to have seen that. It's almost like the uh, what was the guy in the first half of 2000 Kresge, I think, for WWE. I mean, doesn't necessarily have that much of an identity of a personality himself, is because he was only in charge for a relatively short period of time. But uh, that time frame is really held up in high regard, and I kind of feel the same way about uh, about Flair's run here. 
long he, matches on television. That's a big defining uh, characteristic of flares that I've noticed. Yeah, that's that's true. He was big on that. Yeah, uh, and uh, Flair being a heel on top, I guess that's the other thing. He he prefers to work heel, so he makes himself a heel. Right? Um, it's one of the things we find, Chad. He quickly turned himself. Uh, well, we've talked about that, I guess that there was. Um, he was kind of pushed into doing that, but he could have stayed face. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I don't know necessarily know if that was his decision as a. I mean, not. I don't. That one, I still think I'd love to get a straight answer from Flair. I doubt we will at this point in his career <laughs> or life. But uh, that that is always something I would really like for him to delve deep into, kind of the politics side. I mean, whether or not he preferred to work as a heel or not, I wonder if he'd have stayed face, if or if he sort of saw uh, the writing on the wall and then turned heel. There's a, there's just a lot going on in this like two month span. Sure, um, and th- I mean the only other thing on uh, Flair as a Booker, I guess, is that um, I I always get the impression that he was letting you know Cornette have quite a lot of say, and you know guys like Terry Funk and Sullivan and uh, I. Meltzer talks of him as a kind of figurehead a lot of the time, so I just wonder if um, if a lot of the actual idea generation was coming from the committee rather than from him. Um, okay, so March is set, March twelfth now, and we've just got like a litany of huge amount of uh, injuries going on at this time. There's an injury to Arn Anderson who's got a pinched nerve. There's an injury to Shane Douglas who's out for four weeks with knee surgery. There's an in- injury to Buzz Sawyer who's out for three weeks with a broken wrist. Dan Spivey, um, our friend uh, Chad, has been fired for missing dates and not letting the company know in advance of several TV tapings. He also could be injured. Stan Lane has a bad neck. Uh, Eddie Gilbert missed a drop kick against Ric Flair and felt a sharp pain when he landed. He may have broken a rib or punctured something. something. Mark Callis is off to Japan until April. Uh, Ricky Morton has a torn pec muscle from Wrestle War when he hit uh, Bobby Eaton with a crossbody. Michael Hayes has been pulled off TV for March. Reasons unknown so far. Um, and that story doesn't seem to come back again. So uh, I don't know what happened to Michael Offered Hayes. a drink to somebody, probably. However, worst of all, Lex Luger might be injured uh, after he was cut when uh, Sam Hu hit him with a U.S. Uh, title belt last Wednesday. Luger had to have stitches. Um, even beyond all of those injury concerns... Meltzer has worries about uh, the backstage situation. He thinks that um, the combination of evil Jim Hurd and Barnett uh, is a dis- has disaster written all over it. He said Jim Hurd has never run a wrestling company, and Jim Barnett has never been a booker, to his knowledge. Um, even like back in his Australia days, he was uh, more like a kind of Jim Crockett Jr. F- figure, you know? Um, apparently, uh, just before he went, uh, Flair was talking to guys like Bret Hart, Ted DiBiase, and Kurt Hennig about jumping ship before... Um, uh, you know, coming to NWA, but the management didn't want to open a bidding war with Vince. Um, and this is how things like the Tully Blanchard uh, deal fell through. Um, and I mean, whoever's right or wrong, Meltzer spots a pa- pattern here of the NWA losing their talent while the WWF holds on to theirs. Um, Meltzer also accuses her of being kind of a, a, a wormy character. Um, for example, he approved of the plastic bag angle. Um, but when the complaints came into TBS, he blamed it on the booking committee as being their idea. So <laughs> that's the sort of guy that Jim Hurd is. Um, 
he also talks about a three-sided feud, management versus bookers versus wrestlers, and we've seen this kind of coming a long time now. Um, right. A big turning point was the Missy Hyatt situation when she was added to the booking team despite the... Uh, uh, she was added to the commentary team, sorry. I was about to say, say yeah. team. <laughs> uh. No, but she was added to the commentary team okay. despite being vi- voted down by the committee. So the management just said, right, she's going on anyway. Um, so that effectively meant that Flair and others were powerless, right? They've, they've said no, but they've, they've still been overruled. Um, he also says that injuries uh, played a big role in uh, them having to change their plans a lot, right? Um, and the other big news... Uh, where the big boys play legend superstar Billy Graham <laughs> has been all over the news in uh, Southern California. He's been hospitalized in Burbank and is awaiting surgery to replace his disintegrated ankles. And uh, the problem is that there's been a lot of talk in the coverage about Graham's steroid usage having a part to play in his injuries, uh, which has annoyed Vince, of course. Um, Graham was 46 at this point, by the way. Um, and in the report... Graham claimed that 90% of wrestlers use steroids um, and that while the WWF tested for cocaine, they don't use, uh, they don't test for steroids. Um, apparently, Graham will never be able to walk normally again. So, obviously, this was a massive story at this point. Um, any any comments on the... I don't know what else can be said at this point about the, about the steroids, but uh, this is where it all started, right? Yeah, I mean, I think this is kind of where... Uh to take, I guess, a uh, base, baseball analogy, this would be, I guess, the Falco scandal equivalent for wrestling where you knew something was going on for a while now, but this was sort of the first big semi-public thing that kind of thrusted it into the spotlight. And then uh, this, this actual scandal and trial with Vince, I guess, amplified it even more. A lot of parallels with Jose Canseco, with Graham being sort of the pioneer. Fall of, uh, guy, yeah. Yeah, and being the, also being the first to uh, to really pull this out in the open. Right. Is it, one thing I wondered about is how much does Graham's personal bitterness come into play here? Like, is he is he doing this to try to screw over the industry that feels that he is? Is he trying to screw over the industry that he feels screwed him over? There's, prob- um, there's, there's probably some of that there, and it was that was also the case with Conseco too. But uh, when he says 90%, that sounds pretty accurate to me. Yeah. Yeah. Well, my question here is uh, honestly, so what? <laughs> so what? I mean, what's the big deal? Why is it such a big problem? That's well, I mean, it is, it is illegal whether or not you think it should be legalized. It is illegal to take anabolic steroids. Right, so it's just against the law to take the steroids. Well, I mean, I think that's the easiest thing to say. I mean, I, you know, try not to get too political. I don't, I mean, I think everybody that does take steroids sort of neglects the ramifications that can come uh, come out of that just basically for the short, short-term gain. That's a, that's a choice they make, and as an individual, you know, whether or not you want to make that choice or not but i mean it is it was illegal at this time right uh, to take steroids so from a legality standpoint and certainly vance and uh even jim hurt anybody running a multi-million dollar corporation where illegal activities running rampant throughout it is uh I i don't think that's ethically very good either sure okay no i agree um 
So, March 19th, and the steroid shit is really hitting the fan now, uh, because Bruno Sammartino has added his voice to Graham's, uh, which has, uh, I guess, sent this into real kind of storm mode now. Um, and uh, there's tons and tons of stuff on steroids from uh, Meltzer here, as you'd, as you'd expect. So, um, I guess as a historical curiosity, it's pretty good to go and read back all of that stuff. Um, but I don't know what more we can say at this point. <laughs> um the only other bit worth mentioning from this March 19th uh, newsletter that I could see is that um, the NWA made $85,000 uh, from the WrestleWarGate, but they claim to have made another $81,000 from the 900 hotline number. Do you believe that? Uh, well, I mean, the only time I did call the hotline was for the Hulk Hogan hotline, and it was ridiculously expensive, so I don't know, but... Uh... But, yeah, I mean, 81000 sounds like a lot. I mean, I mean it, even it's, what, like a dollar a minute, so. I mean, if that's true, they're basically doubling their gate receipt. Uh, yeah, I don't, I don't know if they could have had 80,000 minutes of people calling the hotline. Was this just for people listening, like, to radio play-by-play of the show, or is this, like, over a year or something? No, this was for the rest of the show itself. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah, no way. Yeah. I can't say that. It uh, seems a bit ridiculous, right? Um, yeah. Maybe, maybe they're maybe they're all tuning in for Lance Russell. They really. Want I was going to say I like Lance Russell, but I don't like him that much. Yeah. Um, March twenty sixth. Uh, the injury to Arn is even worse than originally thought, and he has a herniated disc. Um, Tony Schiavone will be re- returning as an NWA uh, producer and announcer after WrestleMania. This was agreed with the Evil Jim Hurd this past Wednesday, uh, this past Tuesday. He'll be taking over from Terry Funk as the producer of syndicated television. Um, a lot of Nes- uh, WrestleMania news uh, around this time, obviously, which I won't go into. Um, Cornette and the Midnight Express uh, and the NWA have come to an impasse over their contract negotiations. Um, and it looks like the Midnight Express may be part and company after all. Um, they aren't happy about being near the bottom of the card. Um there's an attempted deal. Uh, we'll, we'll come back to that midnight story in a second because there's more on it. Um, there's an attempted deal here. This was interesting um, between the NWA and the AWA for WCW essentially to take over AWA syndication. However, this uh, deal uh, went south because Vern Gagne wanted to stay independent. Oh, God. <laughs> now, as part of the deal... Uh, if this deal would have gone through, Vern would have been made a WCW commissioner. And I've just written in my notes here, what an idiot. I mean, Christ, 1990 at this point. You, you, you've seen some of the 1990 uh, AWA stuff. I mean, is there anything worth keeping on, holding on no, to? Well, yeah, this is Vern definitely being the band on the Titanic going down with the ship. I mean, it is... He certainly now three years removed from 1987 when he really should have gotten an inkling that things were going south in a hurry. We're uh, even three years beyond that. So he had to know that it was a lost cause at this point, but uh, uh, kind of unfortunate. But it's just, it's just ego and pride at this point, right? Yeah, I think he just didn't want to give it up or wanted to see it to its conclusion. So, um, In other news, Abdullah the Butcher has signed... Uh, with WCW until June. Uh, now he doesn't crop up on this show, but uh, did you? Uh, do we yeah, see him? No, soon? I don't. They, I don't. They used, 
he, he's actually a baby face at this time. Yeah. He's, he's aligned with Norman the Lunatic, if you can believe yeah. it, and Mike Rotunda in uh, one of the most bizarre six-man alliances I've ever heard of. But, uh, yeah, he doesn't <laughs> last too long. Right. Um, and there's more restructuring of the announced lineup stuff, which I'll uh, come back to in more detail in a bit. Um, April the 2nd, and uh, tempers are really flaring behind the scenes now with a bitter feud between uh, Ric Flair and uh, evil Jim Hurd. Um breaking out because Hurd wants Flair to drop the title, but Flair has it written into his contract that he can choose who he drops the title to. Now, according to Meltzer, the problem is a bit more complicated than Flair just refusing to job. Um, and I've just written here, watch this space on that situation, because uh, this one's going to run and run, I think. Um, yeah, Any thoughts on uh, Flair actually dropping the title on this point? Uh, Meltzer does go into you know the pros and cons of it, and um, he says that, well, basically, until Sting's back from injury, Flair Luger's all they've got on top. So, you know, which way do you go with it? Do you, do you give Luger the title at this point? Yeah, does is that who Meltzer's saying Heard wanted him to drop the title to Luger and yeah. Flair was adamant on dropping it to Sting? Yeah, it would have been to Luger, yeah. Okay, this is the one where I side with uh, Big Jim Heard, actually. I, I think. Uh, as we go through our show today, Capital Combat, I think this was the time to, uh, to actually drop the title to Luger for sure. And I do think they did some pretty big damage to Luger in the way they handled the finish of uh, this pay-per-view. Right, well, more on that in a bit then. Uh, right. Peter, any initial thoughts here? Uh, I'm kind of the same way. Uh, I think you got to, in a perfect world, they'd have pulled the trigger and put the belt on Luger and who knows? Maybe Luger's uh, turns out to be the ideal number one guy and not Sting. And Sting sort of gets shunted aside the way Luger did. So, re- reading between the lines here, I think the problem is not with Flair doing the job or losing the title. It's more with Flair being worried about what's going to happen to him after that. Um, so I, I, I think, I mean, just knowing what happens between these two going down the line i think flair's worried about well if i lose the title what what about me you know what happens to rick flair the main eventer then type thing yeah but so. he was willing i mean the plan all along was for him to lose it to sting at wrestle war and that was when flair was still booking it, it it's kind of weird how flair uh seems to have uh, around this time he was very i guess adamant on sting being the guy yeah. Uh, kind of to pass the torch, which maybe he I, figured that if Sting was sort of his 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 prized prospect, that the heavyweight champion would show some loyalty to him. That's just a total guess, but yeah. you have a bigger, a more a more powerful ally in Sting than with Luger. This is actually the second because uh, Meltzer's got lots on this, but uh, apparently uh, back in Chicago, um, a couple of years back, Flair was meant to drop the title to Luger then, and didn't do it. In the uh, in the July show, so I mean, Flair does seem to have some particular problem about putting Luger over, um, you know, for the title. So uh, that that I think in some ways may just again boil down to Luger was not exactly the most popular uh, person in the promotion. Yeah. Anytime he was in one, yeah. Um, so uh, the the other news here is that Jim Crockett Jr. appears to be back in some sort of power role. Uh, he joined the uh, he's joined the booking committee along with Wahoo McDaniel and Jody Hamilton, aka the Assassin. Um, and uh, as this is happening, allies of Ric Flair, the likes of Jim uh, 
uh, Cornette and Kevin Sullivan are kind of fading fast. Their grip on power is uh, loosening considerably. Um, and there's also talk of splitting up the Midnights with Bobby Eaton becoming a horseman. What do you think of that idea? <laughs> that would have been interesting. Um, I don't know. I, I, I didn't actually see Eaton as a horseman. What do you think, Peter? They were actually they went so far as to tease this on television with uh, a episode of the Louisville Slugger where Cornette and Woman talk about going to the back to negotiate the Midnights going into the Horsemen and Cornette becoming a commentator full time. I I think I I think Lane at least strikes me as a Horseman type and Eaton um, I think would have fit in better than Sid. Best <laughs> I can say about that. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I, I quite like the idea of uh, the fourth horseman being kind of uh, a single, more of a kind of big, you know, I like the idea of it being Sid or Luger or, or one of these type of guys, you know. But um, Okay. Uh, April 9th, this is Mania, WrestleMania issue, so there's not a lot of news there. April the 16th, um, and I don't know what Meltzer was doing on april the 16th but he he he, uh he annoyed me a little bit (laughs) there are um stories that rick flair was at wrestlemania um and that he was being wined and dined by vince however um melzer points out that these reports are basically impossible because uh flair wrestled luger twice that night several thousand miles away (laughs) um and then he go then he literally spends two whole pages um going on about how uh, Flair wasn't in Toronto, but in fact, there's an imposter Ric Flair going around called e- <laughs> called called Ian Rude. Um, he talks about like uh, extensive investigations and uh, how the, how they were separated, how they were twins, and they were separated in 1970 and stuff. And uh, honestly, I di- I didn't really enjoy it. I thought he really labelled. I thought I I honestly I got my notes here. This is the sort of thing that JDW would do on. PWO to <laughs> I, I really didn't enjoy it at all so, so there we are um, like, this is this is a Meltzer thing though I mean he uh, I mean he, he does luckily now he kind of has a forum of a podcast and a radio show where he can go on sort of these bizarre 15 minute rants that come out of left field uh, that kind of loosely tie into what's going on like I know about a week ago they doing some weight cutting uh parameters shifting in uh, new jersey the athletic commission for mma and he really went on like this extensive 20 minute audio rant but uh, at least now like he can kind of do that in one show and you can fast forward or do whatever you want with it and don't have to kind of muck up multiple pages of the observer he, he should stick to what he does best, I think. But uh, <laughs> April the 23rd, um, the, the, which is uh, known incidentally, it's just brained in, uh, burned in my mind as being Shakespeare's uh, birthday, April the 23rd. But it was also um, the day that uh, the Egg Dome Tokyo WF show happened, um, which I still haven't seen. Um, mm-hmm. I, is that the one where Warrior DBRC happens? Yeah. Yes. That and then uh, Hanson Hogan. And, oh, and yeah. Savage and Tenru. Savage Tenru, yeah. I'm really looking forward to, to, to watching that. I've really enjoyed the eight dumb shows from 1990 so far. So, um, and that one's really, Hogan Hansen's really interesting to me. Any, uh, is it anywhere near as uh, interesting as it seems on paper? Oh, I, lo- I like uh, the, the Hogan Hansen match is probably one of my favorite Hogan matches, period. And then the uh, the Savage Tenry match is a lot of fun too because uh, Sherry's there, 
and they really kind of have a U.S. style match in Japan with the crowd interaction and stuff like that. So it's it's a very good match too. Does uh, does Hansen slap the shit out of Hogan? <laughs> That's what we all want to see. <laughs> it, right? is a, it is a pretty uh, stiff match and worked uh, very snugly. That also has a uh, Bret Hart versus Masawa on it wow. as Tiger Mass. But uh, that that match to me is not very good at all. It's kind of interesting for who the two guys are, but uh, but it's not a good match on its own. Talk about fancy booking, right, though, Chad? That's a, that's yeah, a... yeah, you would think that would have been even kind of young Tiger Mask Masawa and 1990 Bret Hart in a singles coming off his 1989 run where he did a lot of singles work and something about it. They just didn't really jail. Right. Okay. Um, so the, the other uh, news here, and this is this uh, is reasonably amusing here, uh, Chris Cruz and Terry Funk uh, that dream commentary team, um, Crispy Cruz, of course, um, they're both gone from their jobs. Um, apparently, Funk phoned one of the secretaries in the office to find out um, who he was interviewing on Funk's Grill on Monday, and he was told that it wasn't scheduled. So Funk, being Terry Funk, just flew back home, went back to the ranch. Um, Cruz um, was told he'd be covering Worldwide with Kevin Sullivan, and I guess out of loyalty to Terry Funk, he refused and no-showed. And um, Shivani subbed in for him. And, of course, evil Jim Hurd fired uh, Cruz on the spot. <laughs> um, then they tried to contact Terry Funk to bring him back, but he didn't want to know. And uh, this is the bit that really made me laugh. Cruz uh, rung up the next day, but uh, Jim Hurd said it was too late. And uh, I did, do you remember that episode of Seinfeld where Costanza quits his job and then tries to get <laughs> I just got images of uh, Chris Cruz like walking back in the office as if nothing had happened. You know? <laughs> um, any great loss? I, I think Terry Funk is going to be a loss to any promotion. Um, but Chris Cruz, I mean, now Shivani's back, he's pointless, right? Yeah, he can yeah. go. Okay, April the 30th. Uh, <laughs> and this also made me laugh. <laughs> Shane Douglas had quit after refusing to job to Mark Callis. Uh, Mark Callis. Um, he, apparently, um, Shane Douglas didn't want to lose after the heart punch. Uh, he was willing to jaw, but not to the heart punch. <laughs> so, you know, see you later, loser. I mean, come on, <laughs> Shane Douglas. Um, uh, any great loss at this point, Chad? No, 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 not in 1990. Uh, Paul Lee is uh, uh, definitely signed now in a one-year deal worth 120k, and it looks like the Midnights will be... Uh, staying after all but no deal signed let yeah and this this saga's just been running and running and running now uh starting to get boring the midnights are they going to yeah. sign <laughs> well you have a lot more uh, to come on that this is probably one of the behind the scenes one of the this and jim hart versus rick flair are probably your two feuds behind the scenes of 1990 yeah well i mean how do you think they've been using the midnights they have been kind of low on the cars at this point uh, they have, but as we see in our show uh, today, I think that was a step in the right direction. Yeah, no, I quite enjoyed the Pillman's Inc. Uh, feud, the TV. Um, May the 7th, the NWA Ray ran a New York show for the first time in two years and got a uh, 9,500 gate at the Medal- Meadowlands. Not bad. Um, no, that seems pretty good, yeah. Um, Paul Lee now, so this is the, uh, the announcing shake-up at this point. Paul Lee will be doing Color on Power Hour with Jim Ross. Worldwide uh, team, just for now, is going to be Teddy Long and Tony Schiavone. I don't like that team. Teddy Long? 
Is he any good as a color man at this point? No, he's not. Um, There's a. Um, I know uh, Brad just watched the Flair versus Luger uh, May 5th match. And uh, Teddy at one point uh, exclaims, Is that a backslide during the match <laughs> on commentary? So it's, he's not very good. Uh, and then on main event, you've got Bob Coddle and uh, Kevin Sullivan. So I'm not none of those uh, teams apart maybe Ross Pauly is quite a good team but the other teams don't fill me with any excitement yeah I like I like Ross and Pauly together and their stuff but the other teams seem kind of weird yeah I take Crispy and Funk over any of those just just because I enjoy Terry Funk calling Cruz Crispy all the time <laughs> um, May the 14th uh, Meltzer notes a subtle repositioning of Flair and Luger going into the cage match as Luger for weeks had been talked up as the favourite but now they've switched it, and they're talking up Flair as the favourite because he won several of his previous six titles in a cage, which of course gives Meltzer, uh, you know, next couple of pages on all of Flair's previous cage match wins. So, um, do you, did you see that while watching the the, the kind of week to week stuff, Peter, the the repositioning of Flair and Luger going into the match? The thing that jumped out at me was that Flair and Luger were repositioned underneath RoboCop in the uh, advertising for the show. But uh, I, I do remember Ross saying during the uh, match itself that he had predicted Flair to win. So, And, it, and the odd thing is they didn't use the legitimate knee injury as, a, uh, as, a, as an excuse or an out for Luger, I don't think. They just right. said that Flair was the favorite. But there's, there's more to this story as we'll get to during the match, I think. Yeah, and a, a new booker is going to be announced next month. Um, apparently, the job was offered to Jim Crockett, who turned it down. Um, not surprising, because Jim Crockett never booked anyway. Um, Bill Watts flew in for talks, um, but the sticking point with Watts was that he couldn't agree to the level of control. He wanted more control, as you can imagine. Um, Heard also had talks with Jerry Jarrett, um, and there's also talk of Dusty Rhodes coming in. And th- this, I think, is where Meltzer is best. He says there's good and bad uh, in every choice and he, he has a quite you know he has a little paragraph in each guy breaking down you know the pros and the cons I, I won't go into it but I think that's the sort of stuff that Meltzer does best would you agree as well as the kind of bios and things yeah the obituaries would probably be my one but uh yeah um, I mean he's sometimes he's pretty yeah he is good in regards to analyzing certain choices and uh, kind of looking back then at stuff in the rearview mirror and uh, seeing if that was the best choice and weighing it out. Yeah, so speaking of the right choice or the wrong choice, May the 21st, the new booker was announced uh, as Ollie Anderson. Right. And uh, Meltzer's analysis of that was pretty great as well, uh, looking back at some of his kind of Georgia stuff and about how the company is going to look now in this weird structure where you have Ole Anderson reporting into Jim Hurd. Um, so, well, we'll see how that plays out over the next few shows, I guess. Um, Horseman, you said you were going to take me out. But you made a big mistake when you started messing with the little stingers. So before you make your next move... Take it over, Creed. Saturday, May 19th, Turner Home Entertainment strikes a blow for justice. Capital Combat Fighting, the return of RoboCop. The Honorable Ric Flair holds court in the ring when he defends his world heavyweight title against the mighty power of the total package, Lex Luger. 
The Steiners steal their own brand of law and order when they defend their world tag title against Doom. Norman and the Road Warriors take on tough guys at a six-man tag team rumble. A night of fight and battle. Peace officer. Capital Combat Fighting, the return of Robocop. Robocop 2, coming this summer to theaters everywhere. So let's get on to the pay-per-view. Capital Combat. Excited? <laughs> <laughs> it's the return of Robocop. Um, and I guess uh, when he actually shows up, we'll talk about whether this was a good idea or not. Um, Tony Schiavone's back. And uh, my first note is that he's looking skinny as hell. Tony was, went on a diet in 1990. Well, he has a different haircut, too. <laughs> no. Tony's hair goes on a wild odyssey the uh, the next couple of years, so <laughs> buckle up. This is not a bad look for Tony, though. Tony's worst look, of course, was late 90s when he was, like, fat in the Hawaiian shirt with the, with the curtain. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, another man who's uh, on, a, on the comeback trail here is Bob Coddle. Uh, he, he takes over color commentary with Jim Ross here. And uh, I've got to say... Um, as an initial note, I thought this is the best I've ever heard Bob Coddle on any show that we've done. I thought he was at several points where he was insightful, some of his quips were funny, and he was good company during the whole show. So, a, a positive note on Coddle for me. Well, it may be a case where Coddle is just better in the 90s, in our opinion, than in the 80s, because, uh, because like I said, I really like him in Smoky Mountain, too, and that's 1992 to 1995 or whatever. So, Any thoughts, Peter? I've always been down on Coddle. So I know. I, 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 I like Coddle quite a bit. And uh, yeah, in 1989-90, I, I like him better than Gordon Soley, in fact. So um, his run is not much longer here. But, um, yeah, I'm going to enjoy it while it lasts. One thought I had is that maybe in the 80s he was in a comfort zone, Chad, that he didn't really like. He always felt like he was on autopilot a lot of the time. Whereas here, there's a lot of competition for this slot on the pay-per-view. So maybe Coddle's actually bringing his A game because he needs to fight for his job. That's, that's yeah, well, well, yeah, I mean, this, this right now, like we've mentioned a few times, WCW announcing situation right now is uh, very deep because, like, in this show you have these two announcers and they were prominent, you know, play-by-play guys in the 80s for Mid-Atlantic and Mid-South. Then you have Gordon Soley, uh on investigative reporting for RoboCop. And of course he's like a legend status and Lance Russell. I don't know if he was doing the hotline for this show or not, but he's breaking in that 80 K 80 K Lance Russell, bringing, bringing that money in. <laughs> yeah. So he's, he's, uh, he's hanging out backstage too. So it was very flush with, uh, announcing talent. So he, he probably, but he, he did good. I think kind of knowing his role, I guess more as a, uh, color commentary in this show than in some others we've seen him so let's get into our opener then bam bam bigelow makes a return with oliver humperdinck uh, by his side number 40 draft oliver humperdinck chad <laughs> <laughs> um cactus jack and kevin sullivan are his tag partners and he's taking on the row warriors um who really are just in no man's land here curtain jerking in this meaningless six-man match with uh, with Norman the Lunatic as their as, as their partner, um, Peter. What do you think of this one? Uh, 
the crowd was loud and they were into it, but this wasn't much of a match. Um, and yeah, you're right. The Road Warriors are just, they're not doing anything, not on television. And this is stuck in this rather meaningless feud here. And uh, they're not, they're kind of phoning this in too. I think Norman was actually the best guy in the match. Um, Cactus Jack had some really great bumps as you'd expect, but his offense, which is a running theme for his first year on national TV is really, really bad. His punches look bad. He doesn't have much in the way of moves or anything like that. And then, um, again, the crowd's into it, but they got sort of this perfunctory face and peril segment. And then, you know, all six guys brawl in the ring. Hawk gets a clothesline off the top. This is a pretty anticlimactic. I think this is the last. This is the last of the Road Warriors until '96. Uh, oh, uh, really? I, I believe this is it, because um, they're in the WWF by uh, July. They're there for SummerSlam. So, wow! Did they crop up? I'm just going to check to see if they crop up uh, uh, Clash uh, Eleven. Uh, no, they don't. This is it. This is it till wow. uh, I think. I think Hawk is back at Starcade 1993. Is that when? I'm pretty sure that's when he uh, teams with Sting. Yeah, yeah. it's Sting He's and Road Warrior Hawk defeat the Nasty Boys in Starcade 1993. Who was in War that, Games that year, wasn't he? Uh, yeah, I think they are. Okay. But that, yeah, they'll be they're gone now for uh, three years. We won't see them. And this is also our last uh, Norman the Lunatic. Right. Appearance, sadly, so, so, I looked that up. So, so Chad, uh, tell us about this match, and then we can eulogize for the Road Warriors and Norman. <laughs> um, I, I agree mostly with uh, Pete's assessment. Not a ton going on for nine minutes. It wasn't, I didn't think, terrible. And Cadiz Jack took some uh, crazy bumps. I mean, that bump where he got slung over the guardrail again yeah. is is very. Uh, a nutty bump, but I, I too, I think I may be lower than Cactus Jack in 1990 than a lot, just because I do have a problem with his offense. There's a uh, match he has in March versus Eddie Gilbert that we probably will end up watching part of as part of our TV special. Yeah. Uh, but uh, I mean, it uh, it has a lot of fans to it, and I kind of think I was lower on it on first watch just because I couldn't get past the offense of Jack on that. Um, this match, I mean, Bam Bam to me was kind of the guy in this match that really felt marginalized. I mean, you would think him coming back to the promotion would be someone that like, he'd be a hot commodity and you'd want to, uh, I mean, you know, Norman's not around for much longer anyway. So why not give him the win over Norman here? Uh, at least to help build him up, but but Bam Bam's not here for very long at all. Uh, actually, his last show is uh, is the Clash Eleven show, uh, and then he'll be gone for nearly eight years. But uh, but just a kind of strange match with the Road Warriors on autopilot. Uh, I do think I'd agree uh, with Pete also that this is probably the best I think Norman's actually looked, which isn't saying much. But overall, this is not the worst thing uh this is not like a, a, a god-awful match but it's certainly not a good one either you know my, my notes are exactly the same i just written a uh, decent action here crazy bumps by jack including a uh moment where somebody throws the steps at his head 
you know, is that that was that was Hawk? Yeah. That was yeah, crazy. That was yeah. Um, I mean, that that was dangerous. Uh, it could have also landed on the crowd as well. Um, uh, I, I, my note is that Norman looks reasonably motivated. He actually was bumping around everywhere. He was our face in peril for this match, right. and um, at one moment, Bam Bam suplexed him. I mean, Christ, this guy's four hundred uh, pounds, and he took a suplex. So that's not bad. <laughs> um, so it wasn't wasn't bad this match, but. Yeah, the Royal Warriors look like they've tapped out a long time ago to me. Yeah. And uh, they kind of needed to leave, I reckon. I I, I think um, I, I talked about this on the ball with, uh, I think, Superstar uh, Sleaze um, about how nobody really thinks about how the Royal Warriors jumping to WF was actually a shot in the arm for them. Because their careers were really in free fall at this point, as far as I can see. I mean, what are they doing here? They, they've been doing nothing for, it seems like, since since that Chicago match almost. And that was like two, two years ago. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, they're 1989 and in the first half of 1990, there's not, I mean, they're still being protected, but there's just not the emphasis on them as like the team to go through that you had before. Yeah. So, I mean, it's still a loss for the NWA though, coming back to Melsa's point. I mean, they're obviously assets in some ways, but why can't they use them a bit better? I mean, I mean, they are, but I do think at this point, I mean, I don't know what their contract situation was like or how much they cost, but I don't think the tag division suffers much at all because the next couple of shows uh, up to Starcade to me are some of the best tag team all around shows in uh, WCW history. Well, the, the Especially Halloween Havoc. The perception that already seems palpable at this point that the Steiners have surpassed them as sort of the uh, unbeatable Goldberg-esque uh, part of the tag division. Yeah. Do, do you think it's a problem that the Royal Warriors wouldn't put anyone over? Because, might, I mean, if the Royal Warriors start actually doing jobs to people, which obviously they refuse to do, uh, being the types of guys that they are, but let's say that they did, does that then hurt the aura of the Royal Warriors? Like, is not losing part of their gimmick in a way. Uh, does that make any sense? Maybe, but I do think there's a difference between when they first come on the scene, run through everybody, you know, they're the dominant force. Now, I mean, they've been around for many years. They're a little older. I mean, you, you could build, you could have built a, a pretty interesting storyline where like doom is now the new powerful tag team and they actually beat the road warriors clean. And, you know, the road warriors have to reach deep down and they may not, you know, be able to be the team they once were and doom surpassed them. I mean, I think there's some storylines that could be crafted there. It's, but I mean, I mean this six man, they didn't, uh, you know, they, like they got the win. I mean, I don't see how there's any reason why they got the win in this six man. Like I said, uh, to me, Bam Bam getting the win seems like the most logical choice. But we, I mean, we, we've seen them in about a five year stretch now, and in all that time, they've done one job. So it's like, where do you, where do you go with them? You know? Um, right. Norman, any great loss here? No. Yeah. This Norman's one of my. Uh, I like the first half of 1990 WCW a good bit. Norman, to me, is the worst, uh, probably the week-in, week-out worst part of that because he was pushed uh, fairly heavily and never did a lot for me. So, good riddance. Bam Bam's gear in this match looked really low rent. I don't know what the deal was. (laughs) My thought about Bam Bam in this match is that he kind of feels a little bit like damaged goods at this point. Like, he's... 
he's had a lot of these short, crappy runs now. Um, maybe Bam Bam doesn't really hit a stride until '93 WF, maybe, uh, from what I can think of. He has a really yeah. good. He's a really good '92 working New Japan teaming with Vader. But yeah, yeah, on the U.S. Um, I think he's just got that sort of choker uh, label that Luger had at this point. Um, right. He's a guy with all the tools to be a huge star, but he hasn't gotten there yet. And even even the even the densest Mark fan has got to be able to uh, pick up on that vibe by now. All right, so the second match here, and um, <laughs> Christ, uh, Johnny Ace, <laughs> Johnny Ace taking on uh, Mark Callas, uh, who's with. Um, Teddy Long as his manager. Um, my only note going into this is that um, it's noted on commentary that uh, Mark Callis said that his hobby as a young- youngster was being a bully, <laughs> which uh, which I thought was quite um, quite funny. Uh, all right, so Chad, uh, any thoughts on this classic? Uh, they also dropped that Callis has a uh, college degree, which I enjoyed that as well. <laughs> Uh, just seeing like the undertaker go to class seems very odd, but, uh, but yeah, this match is a, a very interesting match in, uh, in a microscope looking back at it, uh, where you have mean Mark versus Johnny Ace. But at this point, 1990, Johnny Ace was still very green as we've talked about constantly. Uh, he's still trying to get the cheers and it's just not happening for him. Uh, this this is another match though. I kind of lump in the in the first uh, with the first match. I thought this could have been worse than it was as far as an actual match. And uh, to me, Mean Mark looked pretty athletic. Like that uh, elbow drop he did at the end looked yeah. pretty good. And 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 for Ace, I'll give him a little credit for Ace sloppy standards. There was not any absolute you know eye-opening terrible botches in this match he looked a little uh shaky on like his high cross body that he did at one point and some of his strikes but we never got those sort of train wreck botches that we have gotten some of the dynamic dudes tags peace any thoughts uh I, I this was a lot better than i expected it to be actually um this is not a surprise in retrospect knowing Ace's reputation, but it's laid out quite well. Um, Ace sort of trying to play a hit and run, um, trying to stick and move with the bigger callus. Uh, the more advanced moves Ace does, the better he looks, actually. His strikes look bad, as Chad mentioned, but he's flying off the top, he looks pretty good. And callus has, he, he get, I think he does an elbow drop at some point that he gets great elevation on. Uh-huh. And um, and the finish is really good, where uh, I think Ace is running at him, and Callus just gets him out of nowhere with the heart punch. And then he does the uh, the rope walk and elbow off the top for the win. And um, this was this is a pretty good. It was an extended squash, maybe a little too long. But uh, you, there's a lot of star power evident in Mark Callus here that naturally WCW does absolutely nothing with. But... Um, uh, what, two other things I want to say is uh, Chad touched on uh, Callis being a, brought up as a college graduate. That is a recurring pattern all throughout this show is without fail for every wrestler. They will mention how many years he has as a wrestler, if he went to college, and what sports he played in college, if any. Um, we <laughs> learned that Callis was a graduate of Texas Wesleyan and was a 1986 Lone Star Conference MVP in basketball. Um, 
which I would have I would have killed for Vince or Gorilla to bring this up uh, when talking about the Undertaker, but that never happened for yeah. some reason. And then uh, the other thing I want to bring up is um, all throughout '89 they've been using real music and really great picks for that real music and here johnny ace comes out to the <laughs> lamest beach boys doo-wop knockoff song you'll ever hear and mark callis comes out to a uh, what sounds like one of those jimmy hart late 90s uh, ripoffs of danger zone by kenny loggins and this the and this comes up later in the show too. The, the 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 entrance music has gone down considerably, and it seems like a shallow thing to harp on, but it was something that the WWF just blew WCW yeah. out of the water on, and no greater uh, evidence than on this show. And we are going to get it going right here. Sullivan's got to leave the ring because here comes Johnny Ace, and here's the introduction. Toward the ring from the city of sunshine, weighing 238 pounds, Johnny Ace. Johnny Ace, a very popular young individual. He's six four, Bob. Two forty-five. Yeah, Ace's theme does need to be uh, heard. This didn't make the Turner home video uh, portion. We are watching the pay-per-view portion of this uh, this show. But yeah, it is. It is. He he comes out in a white jacket with Japanese writing on the back, and and like Pete just said, it is like woo. You know, it is. <laughs> it is so like doo woppy, waving his hands, getting actively booed. It's it's quite a scene to see his entrance here. Can, can you imagine me in my living room witnessing this? <laughs> yeah, travesty. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Um, I um. My note going into this is uh, is that um, I wonder if the management were trying to teach old uh, Shane Douglas a lesson here. Johnny Ace taking the heart punch like a pro, showing his old partner how it's done. Um, <laughs> um, there was a few bits that made me laugh in this match. Ace went up to the uh, top um, rope at one point and, um, you know, he, uh, he he gestured to the crowd for them to uh, cheer and they just loudly booed him, which made me laugh. <laughs> a poor, poor guy. He's so not over. Um, uh, I actually thought this was decent. Ace was pretty okay, as you've said, and um, it was a good... Uh, went a lot longer than you'd think. I mean, looking on paper, you'd think this would be a two-minute squash match, but this was, what, te- 10 minutes plus? Yeah, it went almost 11 minutes. So, yeah. And at the end here, Ross and Coddle bust out the slammer meter. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's something that needs to be mentioned, too. They have this new graphic. It's called the slammer meter, which it, you, you can almost hear the sarcasm in Ross's voice as he talks about it having to get calibrated up. And uh, I think uh, Callus's elbow registered an 8.2. But they said they'd be busting this out. This was the only time we saw it. So I don't know. Yeah. You know, I mean, it, it's it's just a hokey, stupid, typical 1990, 1991 WCW thing that that on top of it is not executed all that well either. Is yeah, yeah, I don't know. Solved. They were pretty, they were pretty generous with uh with the eight point two ranking there. So, I mean, I can't write Ole Anderson. You know what he's like. You can't imagine that this was his idea. Jim Barnett has got like almost thirty years experience in wrestling. Who's who's is this Jim Hurd just 
Why are all these stupid ideas going on? I mean, the mm. slammer meter. I suspect it was Jim Hurd. Yes. Oh, yeah, probably. Terrible. Okay. Um, speaking. Do you of... have Meltzer's writings? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Let me. Uh, let me. Let me pull these up. Hold on. Um, yeah, let's think say we go straight from the slammo meter to <laughs> what you're about to talk about, which is some more uh, Jim Hurd <laughs> goodness. But uh... yeah, let, uh, let me just have a look at these ratings here. Um, okay. First match, two and two and two thirds. Is that two and two thirds? No, surely not. Oh, I, I can't. I can't see you. <laughs> two and two and something. Maybe two and a half. Two and a I half. I know Meltzer was. I know Meltzer was a big Cactus Jack fan from almost the very beginning, but that's a little too ridiculous. Two, two, two and a half, I think. Um, and this match, he gave one and three quarters, which is a yeah. little. I would flip those. That's a little to bit me. Scary. I gave stingy. I gave one and three quarters of the first one. I gave this one two and a half. Yeah, yeah. I would flip Meltzer's good. ratings. Yeah. Okay. I I'm uh I refuse to uh, rate these lower card matches. Uh, okay. Uh, so <laughs> they're that, below that, you, Parker. <laughs> that's 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 where we are right now. Um, and um, yeah. So speaking of uh, Jim Hurd, Gordon Soley's in the corridor now, looking for still <laughs> looking for Sting. And his new ally, Robocop. Um, Soli says he's mainly here, uh, the Robocop this is, to protect the little stingers. <laughs> I've, just, I've just written in my notes here, what the, what the fuck? And um, I reckon that as Soli's saying it, you can see that exact thought cross his mind. Like, what is he, what planet do you think he's, I, I, bet he, I guess he was on the bottle at this point as well. Like, what, what, what do you think Gordon Soli's thinking as he's, because uh, it's all like steamed up and you can hear, you know, kind of, Roboty noises coming from behind the door. Uh, we might as well talk about Robocop now because this was a big part of the promotion of this uh, of this card. I mean, is this the worst idea of all time, Peter? <laughs> um, it was probably the worst idea to this point in history. Um, I think they would actually lower themselves further uh, later in the decade with Chucky, but uh, the, the, yeah, <laughs> this. Uh, it, it was it was worse than um, it was worse than the. I, I wonder if they were trying to capitalize on the WWF using Zeus, um, but at least Zeus was was an actual human being and a, ostensibly a wrestler. Um, trying to hype a fictional character is coming in to deal with the Horseman. I don't I don't see how anyone could possibly be expected to buy that. Oh, this was horrible. Let, let me put it this way. If the gobbledygooker is not the worst special appearance on a wrestling pay-per-view in a given <laughs> year, you know you have something pretty terrible going on. Uh, something to eclipse that. Christ. I mean, I mean, you have RoboCop. It, and they really built it up. Like, I don't... I, j- I just can't imagine you would pay to see he, RoboCop. He was sold, he was, this was sold as the main event. Well, if you watch yeah, the television, yeah. this is sold. RoboCop's appearance is sold as the main event. More than Flair versus Luger. Right. More than Sting's appearance. More than the Paul Ellering, Teddy Long match. I mean, it was, it was the number one thing. Just playing devil's advocate a tiny bit here, right? Now, let's say if RoboCop was a little bit more fondly remembered. Now, I, I guess, like... 80s guy 80s nostalgia guys like robocop but he's not thought of like terminator or someone like this now let's say they've got arnie to come in to do to be terminator say on 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 a show like this do you think it'd be a bit more fondly remembered do you think like the the inherent lameness of robocop himself himself uh has a part to play here or is it just the, the idea of bringing a film character into the real world of wrestling 
I mean, I'm just saying. Ar- like, Arnold's a little bit closer to Zeus. Is that the real Arnold you can actually buy, especially in wrestling, where where visuals are more important. That he could buy, you could buy him as being able to take out the Horsemen. You know, um, I'm, I'm going off. I'm going off into all sorts of weird fantasy booking territory now. Like, how about bringing in Johnny Five from Short Circuit? <laughs> he could. Well, uh, he, yeah, and another thing too. I mean, RoboCop came out in 1987. Yeah. That's so true. was this? I mean, it, it's it's not like they got the uh, the the real hot commodity. Like RoboCop was a 1989. This, movie. this was a tie into the sequel, wasn't there's it? Because the there's a sequel. sequel yeah. Was it? The sequel okay. Came out in okay. Oh, so this that's was what he, uh, that's what he's that's what he's returning from. Um, uh, I I got another question here. Was this actually Peter Weller here, or was this just some guy in a suit? Yeah, that's what I've always wanted to know. I don't know if Meltzer had anything on that. No, I didn't. I didn't get anything on this either. But this is a question I had for you guys. I was hoping that you would know. So we all wondered the same. There's one. There's one uh, observer about a week before where he sort of assumes that it is Peter Weller, but uh, someone brought up, I think, on another board that he never talks, which might be an indication that it's not Peter Weller. So I wonder if his uh, IMDb profile might have the answer. If he's got Captain uh, Combat on it, I don't know. The... I don't know if I trust that. IMDb when it comes to wrestling isn't always trustworthy. But <laughs> all right, so back to back to wrestling then. Um, Tony Schiavone is uh, with uh, the Rock and Roll Express, and get this: Robert Gibson actually cuts a promo. Is this the first Robert Gibson promo we've ever witnessed, Chad? I mean, uh, it's 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 few and far between, and it's it's not too bad. I didn't think either. No, it it, it wasn't at all, and. Uh, uh, Morton also cuts a pretty good promo on uh, Ole Anderson, which I thought was pretty good. Um, good. I mean, no, I th- just quickly, no, uh, no, no credit for Capital Combat for Peter Weller on IMDb. Oh, so, <laughs> so it wasn't like even, it wasn't even the real RoboCop. Yeah, take that for what you will. I don't know. <laughs> um, well, if any, I'm sure uh, some of the listeners out there will know. Um, so okay. just uh, write to us, uh, PO Box. Um, <laughs> answers on a postcard um okay so our third match tommy rich uh taking on captain mike rotunda uh, yeah sorry, sorry. he's finally the yeah. captain right so uh, explain this to me captain mike rotunda was a face yes. yes okay so he's teaming with tommy rich and uh they're taking on the samoan swat team but this is the fatu and samoan uh, savage version of it uh, interesting and really weird matchup, I thought. <laughs> Rich and Matunda taking on the SSTs. Um, could be good, could be bad. Peter, any thoughts? Um, it wasn't offensively bad, but it wasn't particularly good. Um, one thing I do like about Samoan Savage is that he doesn't really play up the Savage part. He's sort of a cocky Rudo type heel. He does all these you know, fake handshakes. He trash talks. Um, and then he was doing that going back to his days as Tama with the Islanders. But uh, the Samoans really drag this out quite a bit. Lots of stalling. Some of it's entertaining like when the, they're offering trying to shake hands and stuff like that. But there's also sitting around in face locks. Um, they don't. They didn't really come to work here. And just everything just seems so mechanical, I, I guess it would be to say. That that's like the here's where we have our face in peril. Here's our false tag. Here's another false tag later on. Um, it, it came off as very paint by numbers uh, rather than a little more organic, as we'll see later on. And then a standard finish to a standard match where the referee's distracted and they. Axe handle somebody behind the back, behind the uh, referee's back for the pin. 
Um, yeah, it was it wasn't offensively bad or anything, but there was nothing new under the sun here that I saw, other than Mike Rotunda's magnificent ring attire, <laughs> and and getting back to the entrance music, the most ridiculous cornball. They come out to some cornball banjo music. It sounds like um, because Rich is from the South, and that's what all they listen to down there. So, um, Chad, any uh, your favorite guy here, Mike Rotunda, with a new gimmick. Uh, well, I'll give Rotunda some credit in this match. I thought he was pretty good. I gotta, I gotta say, I actually thought the babyface team overall was, uh, was, was good. And, uh, kind of to go off what Pete said to me, like, it looked like the Samoan Savage found a heel wrestling one-on-one book, uh, backstage <laughs> yeah. and was like reading it because <laughs> yeah, we, we, we get the switching of the partners, the handshake, the, stall techniques i mean it is just every kind of generic heel uh tag team stuff utilized the the opening uh ritual stuff and it just it just drug out i think think we're all fans i think we're all fans of tag formula it's not that we were asking for something you know quote unquote new here but rotunda is not really the most exciting face in peril you'll ever see um Ricky Morton could have made this really good, even with the Samoans working the same way. But Rotunda's not the guy to save this. Yeah, yeah. Well, we did we did get a nerve hold and a chin lock too, which is like the double dance <laughs> stall moves. And then uh, the finish to me, I mean, the finish looked fine for what it was. But as we get on uh, with the show, they almost copy the exact same finish. So I don't know if uh, somebody just wasn't really paying attention to the booking sheet or looking at it or what but uh but we get the almost the like near identical same finish in this match as we get in the doom versus steiner's match uh so that's that's kind of disappointing and another the other comment i had was rich i mean rich was not in this match at all but he was sweating profusely like i don't know (laughs) what made him sweat so much much because like we said rotunda was the face in peril and then he gets the hot tag and when rich comes in of course his hair is all you know sweaty (laughs) his back is just glistening in the light so so i don't know what like worked him up in such a lather but he is uh he's definitely out there but he looked good in his uh, baby face comeback and i will say though I, I mean in all the rotunda appearances we've seen i do think this is in the upper half part absolutely right and that's uh pretty, he had a i whatever you say i think he had a hot late eight to you know, that steiner's feud he was pretty good doing that i thought uh in his varsity club stuff so you know he, he wasn't uh he wasn't terrible here do you think tommy rich is just a sweaty guy chad He's just one oh, of those well, yes, I know that, but I mean, I mean, literally, here he was on the apron for ten minutes, and then when he comes in, he looks like he just went sixty minutes with Flair or something. Now, I there, don't know there were deal. times, and I, I don't mean this facetiously, where Rich seemed to be working harder on the apron than either the two guys were in the ring, uh, <laughs> sort of um, e- exhorting both guys, trying to get the tag stuff like that. Yeah. I've got not, a really, not enough to break out on a sweat, though. I don't think I've got All a really right. weird note here, which is that. There's something about the Samoan Savage that strikes me as being really kind of like late 90s. Like he wouldn't be out of place in the Attitude Era. There's something about him. He just yeah. feels quite like of that period rather than of this period. Like I, I'm imagining like a team where 
alternate universe kind of Samoan Savage and Brian Pillman could have made some weird kind of ECW team at some point, you know? I, I, thought, I thought you were going to say the Samoan Savage ran over Stone Cold. <laughs> well, yeah. Um, I, I actually think that the SSTs have gone downhill rapidly since uh, Savage replaced Samu, Chad. Uh, I, I, I think Samu was the worker out of those two. And, no, uh, no big kahuna here either. No, I... I yeah, we saw him earlier on the show. Yeah, he's done went on to uh, bigger and better things. They they talk about El Gionte on commentary, and um, I did like the fact that Jim Ross referenced Tommy Rich's NWA title win, and he said that he was very popular in uh, 1980-81 as a kind of young star. I thought that was quite nice that he mentioned that. Um, it's good. I, I I don't think guys do that en- enough, you know, where they talk up a guy who's slipped down the card. They used to do it pretty well with Tito Santana in WF and uh, with Greg Valentine as well. But um, they should do more of that sort of thing. Talk up former glories. Um, okay, so what happens now? Tony Schiavone uh, interviews the Steiners. What did Meltzer, what did Meltzer oh, oh, yeah. say on Sorry, I, I always forget about the Meltzers. Yeah, and just real quickly on this, I do want to say this, is, this match goes like almost 18 minutes. And this is the type of stuff you would never see on a pay-per-view nowadays. I mean, this is a completely inconsequential tag team match in the middle of a card, you know, getting 18 minutes of tag team championship match. Uh, I mean, you know, like uh, now the Shield versus the Rhodes family or whatever that you'd see on current WWE TV. It's not getting 18 minutes. So this uh, it's kind of weird to see this was on a pay-per-view, this type of tag match. Yeah, Meltzer hated this match. He gave it half a star. Oh, I'd give it more than that, but it was not very good. He says, um, um, yeah, there were lots of boring chants during the rest holds. Um, yeah, I mean, Meltzer may be a guy who, uh, who's down on mat work almost as much as I am, Chad. (laughs) So it's not, um, it's not, but these were proper rest holds here. It wasn't even like... There was no attempt to make the chin lock interesting or anything. Yeah, I mean, I don't like like Pete said. I don't. We're not dogging the formula, but there was just something about this match that just felt like it's your first year in wrestling school. You know, you're going to do a tag match. It felt like you'd get this type of tag match where kind of throw out everything that you've learned or watched from tag wrestling and see if you can make a match out of it. It, it, it makes no sense because the Savage is what, like a seven, eight, nine year career pro at this point. I mean, and he, um, he was yeah, in- he'd been around a lot. I mean, Rotunda, you know, he was the tag team champion in WWF in 1985. So uh, Savage is on course for, he's a contender for worst worker of the year for me, Chad. He's, he's yeah, been well, terrible. Well, let's, we'll get a, uh, he will show up in our end of show awards. I'll just say that. <laughs> um, okay, so Tony Schiavone's with the Steiners, and um, Scott Steiner seems like he's trying to remember his lines. <laughs> one yeah, of yeah. one of which is, "When the smoke clears, you're gonna get beat up. You're gonna be like everyone else, beat up. <laughs> T- terrible." <laughs> any uh, any good um, anything to this. say about? <laughs> Classics. This was so bad. I never thought I'd yearn for the days of uh, Rick Steiner talking to Alex, but uh, we might <laughs> we might have had that here as this was Scott going on one of his. I think this may have been the first big Papa Pump promo actually, because that's <laughs> what he was talking like. 
<laughs> now, you, you know, uh, you know how Rick Steiner's meant to be like the one with kind of mental problems and things. Like, <laughs> shouldn't it have been Scott? I mean, wouldn't Scott be the? <laughs> All right. Um, Gary Michael Capetta announces the winners in the Capital Combat sweepstakes now. <laughs> Mr. and Mrs. Robert Better. They are pretty happy to win the sweepstakes. So, um, what is this? Come on. <laughs> And NWA is just lose, losing it by like every single segment now. It's like, what the hell's going on? Um, we have a hair versus hair match now, and Missy Hyatt comes out with a world famous hairdresser, Jay Tapper. And what an outfit he was wearing. <laughs> uh, and speaking of an out, uh, outfits, um, Theodore R. Sugar Ray Long yes. <laughs> comes out with his boxing gear and uh, he's got the head guard and everything. And uh, he's taking on uh, precious Paul Ellering uh, in a one-on-one match. Yeah. Christ. Oh, I'm re-watching it now. And when Danny cuts <laughs> his little shake at the end of the aisle, it is absolute comedy goal. Um, this is pretty funny, actually. I mean, I'm not quite any great fan of Teddy Long, but he's the skinny guy wearing the, wearing the uh, boxing gear. <laughs> um, any particular... Uh, yeah, analyze this this one, Chad. I don't know what to say. <laughs> well, well, first of all, Teddy's trunks look like they came out of the uh, Samoans collection. I don't know what type of kind uh, of kind of a weird design pattern on those things on his little boxing ties, but there's there's not a there's not a whole lot here. I mean, we saw a tuxedo match between Cornette and Paul Dangerously that. Uh, kind of perfected a manager versus manager match in a lot of ways. Uh, we we did not get that here. This was right at two minutes, and Teddy throws some absolute awful punches and kicks and does a couple of just terrible barrage of offense. Paul Ellering was a lot more, I guess, built. Like, he was in very good shape at this time, and I yeah. did not kind of expect that. But he, he doesn't do nothing in this uh, in this match either and takes the glove off and whacks Teddy with it and then pins him and we get kind of a half of a haircut from what was the guy's name? Jay Tipper, what was Jay what Tapper? Was, Jay, Jay Tapper. Tapper. Okay. Well and, famous. I mean he, famous. he doesn't even shave his head too, so it's it's not much of a payoff. And and Paul Ellering barely has hair, so I don't know why him <laughs> losing his would have been some great shameful act because he pretty much has a buzz cut. So this, this was, uh, I mean, for five minutes, it's not the most offensive thing, but it wasn't very good. So, so pizza, when we were casting, you know, when we were back in the days, when we were looking for all the guests for the shows, you picked out capital combat, buddy. Uh, why, uh, why <laughs> actually, actually the one I wanted to do, and I think I'm scheduled for a super brawl three. Oh, but, oh uh, right. Okay. okay. Um, why Chad assigned me to this? Uh, <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. Um, I'm grateful for the opportunity, but uh, I, I guess would, no matter what show we picked, there would have been something goofy to comment on, and this was certainly goofy. What struck me is, uh, as part of Long's sneak attack, he does an eye rake. Now, please consider the logistics of trying to do an eye rake with boxing gloves on and see if that works. Uh, <laughs> This was this. It was short, so it would, therefore it wasn't as bad as I expected it to be. But this was um, 
really one of the most pointless match stipulations in the, the history of wrestling between two guy a guy who's already bald against a guy with a crew cut, and then the guy who's <laughs> bald doesn't even get his head completely shaved, just gets the little rat tail or whatever it is cut off. And then Long, I mean, he's kind of a pro, but it's kind of um, the, the way he sells embarrassment so much at the end of this is a little over the top, considering it's yeah. that much change to his look. Yeah, I mean, yeah. this is, he essentially gets what, if he went to his barber and asked for a haircut, I mean, so, you know, he saved 10 bucks. I don't know what he's so upset about. Yeah, well, I, I, just a note on Paul Ellering here. I saw him in 1980 Memphis, uh, a Memphis match recently, and he was really stacked back in the day. He was kind of like, um, kind of like a Jesse Ventura style worker, I guess, like a big muscle guy. Um, so he was still like, he was in good shape here, but he he trimmed down considerably since those days. Um, the other, the only other note I've got is that Bob Cardle made a really good call during the haircut. He said for a wall, for a world class hairstylist, he really he's really doing a good number there, isn't he? So that was a, that was pretty good. Um, but this was basically a squash, which is um, uh, what you could expect here. Um, so Tony Tony Schiavone now is with Ole Anderson, Arn, and Sid, who's now a horseman. Um, how did uh, Sid join the Horseman? Any ideas? He was he was introduced um, as, yeah. in a response to RoboCop. He was introduced as like RoboCop was from the future, and Sid was the future of wrestling. He just came out during an interview uh, with the Tux on, and that was it. Great. So as as Dan Spivey was uh, fired, Sid is now now a Horseman. So good to see uh, the career trajectories of those two men. Um, we get an awesome promo from Ole now, awesome promo from Flair, awesome promo from Arn. <laughs> and I've just got, I really like this version of the Horseman, despite everything, despite the booking, I think they've been cool as hell. Uh, with Ole back as the kind of, ma- almost like the Mafia Don kind of, um, yeah, I, I don't know, he's like the organizer for Flair. I, I really like this lineup. Well, any thoughts, Peter? Yeah, three good promos, and uh, Sid's sort of out of place with the other guys in casual wear, and Sid in his tuxedo. Um, it reminds me of a passage from uh, from Douglas Adams in the sequel to Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, talking about a big bodyguard character. The suit into which the man's body had been stuffed looked as if its only purpose in life was to demonstrate how difficult it was to get this sort of body in a suit. And I think they may have been reading that passage when they decided to have Sid out in the tux all the constantly like this. <laughs> but uh, yeah, this the, the promos themselves were were. I don't have much to say about them, but they were all really good. Um, yeah, do you like this version of the Horseman? Um, I will say I like the version of the Horseman from a promo standpoint, but it's a very weird version in ring because uh, when you know, as we'll reveal later on, they have somebody that comes back in the main event. And then he doesn't do a lot for another few months as he has some personal issues to tend to. Arn has the pinched nerve. Uh, Ollie's pretty much done at this point. And then Sid, you're never going to get you know, a five-star classic out of him. So in ring-wise, it's kind of a weird uh, version of the Horseman where they're almost fully dependent on Flair. Yeah. I, I just really like this. Um, as an on-screen character, I think Ole is... Uh, you don't see this role too often. He's kind of like, I hesitate to say like the godfather of the of the horseman, but he he's getting towards that sort of role here. And I can't think of too many times in uh, 
across history that we've seen a role like this a kind of like the elder statesman who's sorting out you know he's sort he's almost like a troubleshooter for the team um on an organizational level um can you think of any other stables that have even had that role it's really interesting for me as a as a fan of wrestling <laughs> yeah it's, it's a it's a cool role he reminds me of sort of a, a demented uh, football coach actually um yeah, I can that, now that. part of that is because there's a promo with Sting where Ole's wearing a big headset like a guy on the sidelines at a football game. <laughs> but um, that's that's the, the the it's a cultural thing that I don't think really applies across the pond. But there, uh, there's, that's there's how he comes off. There's a really cool split screen uh, segment yeah. with Sting and Ole that I enjoyed, where they're shouting at each other from uh, different locations. <laughs> okay, uh, so let's go on to the next match: Midnight Express versus. Uh, Flying Brian and uh, Tom Zenk. Uh, so we've seen this matchup several times in 1990, and uh, this is the latest one. Chad? Yeah, this is... Uh, they they had a couple of TV matches. Uh, probably at least one of them will make our TV special at the end of the year. But uh, it, it, this is a feud that, for a uh, United States Tag Team Championship feud, they really built up and tried to, and actually had a lot of kind of cool stuff planned that gets botched on involving Pillman. Uh, this this is kind of actually the culmination of the feud, unfortunately, because I think they could really do a lot of stuff from here. But this match is uh, uh, Jim Cornette's in a cage uh, on ringside, so he's neutralized and. The Midnight Express, one of my favorite things about them whenever Jim Cornette is either barred from ringside or in a cage is how uh, kind of discombobulated they act in the first portion of the match. So they're all out of sorts, and Pillman and Zink do a lot of kind of really hot, uh, fun action. Actually, before Cornette gets into the cage, I want to mention that he gets clotheslined by Randy Anderson, which is a spot that I love. (laughs) (laughs) And unfortunately the crowd i don't know if they didn't really gather what happened or what but they don't pop for it as much as i think they should because that's an awesome spot where he goes flying up in the air and uh, really takes a good bump off of that uh but but yeah i I love the opening segment of this with flying brian coming in and giving the double clothesline but then the uh the midnight express takeover and, uh, I mean, we really talk about the Midnight Express control segments a lot here, but this is probably one of my favorites. Uh, Bobby Eaton gives a neck breaker out on the floor. Uh, Brian takes a spill over the top of the floor, and then they just absolutely, like, kill this guy. Uh, give him, Bobby Eaton especially, you know, top rope elbow drops. He gives him the Alabama jam off the top rope. Uh, which it wasn't named at that time, but that looked absolutely vicious with the leg drop off the top rope. He gives the uh, gives the hot tag finally to Zink after a while, and uh, Zink, for his part, I think this is probably my favorite Tom Zink match, uh, maybe ever, and I think it's probably the best he looked probably in a match probably ever. I thought he, while certainly was the fourth person in this match, he didn't look... Uh, absolutely awful. And then the finish is uh, the referees detaining Flying Brian out. Stan Lang loads up the boot, Enziger Zink in the back of the head, and he rolls right into the, the uh, roll-up for Bobby Eaton. 
So they end up winning the uh, United States Tag Team Championships, and then uh, Stan Lane drags Bobby to the outside, and Cornette comes out of the cage, and they have a pretty good celebration. So I've I've sort of gushed over this match a lot just in the past couple minutes talking about it, and uh, I really love it a lot. And then almost shockingly, too, though, this is... I need to watch the Halloween Havoc match again, but on first watch watching this, this was my least favorite uh, Midnight Express pay-per-view appearance of 1990. So to me, that just shows how how good of a year it was for them. Peter? Well, there's actually, I think, some sort of an interesting backstory to this match, uh, politics-wise. It was set up, as Chad alluded to, um, on match on television, where uh, the Midnights jump Pillman and Zink, Cornette comes in and whacks Zink with a tennis racket, and then they go to work on Pillman. And during the match, they talk about how Cornette said he found out something about Pillman. And they go after his throat. They do the Vegematic, where Lane holds Pillman and Eaton does the Alabama Jam with Cornette holding the tennis racket over his throat. And they're going for the Savage Steamboat thing. Um Alluding to the backstory, which is true, of Pillman having throat cancer as a child and needing 33 throat operations, which is why his voice sounds the way it does. And apparently Jim Barnett decided that they wanted to save that angle for when they really, when Pillman was a bigger star or something like that. So they had this great buildup, great beatdown, and then... The announcers and Cornette and everyone are forbidden from actually explaining what was so significant about it. And I don't know if that was just a misguided effort on Barnett's part to save an angle or if it was a way to sort of take some possible heat away from Cornette in the Midnights because there was this big political go-around. Um, but it was a really lost opportunity. And as they, we know, they never actually capitalized on that throat operation angle. And the match itself... I'm not quite as high on it as Chad. Um, I think Cornette being in the cage hurt it a lot. Now, this is not the first time we've seen Jim Cornette in a cage. Uh, It happened at the 88 Great American Bash. But uh, I don't think Pillman and Zink are as good a team as the Fantastics. And I don't think the build uh, to this match was quite as good. Uh, That Fantastics match had a much better build with the Clash and Cornette going nuts with the... uh, with the whip and then Cornette whipping the crowd into a frenzy during that match, trying to get out of being straight jacketed. And there's not quite as much of that here. Um, Eaton is awesome as usual. He does that move where he picks the guy up, slingshots him and does that Billy Robinson backbreaker, which I love, which no one has ever stolen since, which I don't know why. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I, I like the finish though. They, I think the announcers completely miss that zinc that uh, lane loaded the boot and they tease going after the throat again, but again, the announcers don't, they don't even mention the beatdown, much less uh, Pillman's history. So it, it was a good match, but uh, it had the opportunity to be a lot better from both a booking and a work standpoint. Yeah, well, I mean, from my uh, uh, point of view, I'd actually, I actually watched the March TV match last night just before I watched the pay-per-view, um, which may, in retrospect, have hurt this match a little bit because... Um, that the story of that match is that basically Zenk did his best to bring it down, but the face and peril sequence uh, on Pillman was awesome, right? Um, and in this match, Zenk was better, I thought, actually, Chad, as you said. Um, and we got another really cool face and peril sequence with Pillman, uh, you know, uh, bumping around and the MX busting out all the cool offense. Um, 
how how awesome is Eaton's Alabama jam? <laughs> uh, amazing. Um, there's also you mentioned that tilt a whirl backbreaker, the Billy Robinson backbreaker, Peter. Yeah. Um, there's a great spot where Pillman um, reversed that and did one of his own. It was slightly botched, but who cares? I mean, how many times do you see that move done, let alone reversed and then done? Um, and yeah, no, I thought this was a really good match, but um, I, I, I guess because I just watched another match of theirs uh, and it followed a very similar uh, kind of pattern and formula that um, it may have taken the edge off it slightly than if I'd watched it kind of on its own. So, um, and Zenk is clearly the weak link in this foursome and he's not a very good hot tag. I mean, even in this match, um, when he got the hot tag, I felt the energy levels actually dropped rather than picked up. So... Um, yeah, that, that that was one of the least effective uh, House of Fire sequences you're going to see, and then he's then they immediately cut him off as soon as he gets tagged in. So even from a even from a kayfabe standpoint, it's not very effective. <laughs> yeah, it was nice to see the Midnight's get a relatively clean pin. I mean, you said he uh, loaded the boot, but still, you know, this was not that much shenanigans considering they're the Midnight's, right? Um, yeah. Uh, so Meltzer went three and three quarters with that. I might be tempted to go as high as four just for this face and peril sequence. Yeah, I would go four. Um, and then also I won't, uh, we, we forgot the Teddy Long Paul Elring rating, which oh. I can't wait to hear. Uh, Meltzer, hate, uh, as you can imagine, Meltzer hated that. And he went minus two and a half. <laughs> I was going to um, say, if that's not negatives, I'll be uh, shocked. So, he, he, yeah. he actually says he couldn't, he may even run out of negative stars, so yeah, he hated it. Oh, see that 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 match was too short to be negative stars for me. I guess I gave it a dud. If it were yeah. five minutes, it probably would have been negative stars, but since it was two, he, he he said because the match was so short, I only gave it one negative. But that but the head shaving <laughs> or lack thereof was worth a few more negative stars. So <laughs> he he added a star and a half for the head shave. <laughs> <laughs> do you do um do you do uh, star ratings, Peter? You're happy to uh, throw out a rating for the midnight match? Uh, I'm gonna go down a little bit. I'm gonna say three and a quarter. Three and a quarter. Okay. I no. I, I like I said uh, four. For, I just I'm just a mark for um, cool offense, though, as you know. And, uh, and and part of that is I a lot of my match ratings intentionally or not tend to be based on expectations. So right. Callus and Ace. Um, it's not nearly as good, but star rating wise, it's not far off just because I wasn't expecting anything from that match. And I was expecting something a lot better here. Yeah. So after this match, um, oh Christ, <laughs> Gordon Soli now is with it's the main event. He's with Robocop. Um, and they, they put this effect where the footage is all scratched and it keeps on cutting out as if there's like government intervention or something. Um, and, um, yeah, uh, we go back to the ring and. Are we sure Robocop didn't shoot Gordon Soli once the camera <laughs> turned away? Because that's sort of what it looked like. Do we, do, do we see Gordon again? No, I don't think we do. That's the thing. No, I'm not I don't sure. think so. Um, so. So Capetta introduces Sting, who gets a good ovation. And now he also introduces the ultimate peace officer, Robocop. Uh, so the, um, the cage that Cornette was in is still there. Um, and uh, and open, and the horsemen sneak in, and Sting locks it, uh, and they lock Sting in it, which made me laugh. I thought that was really funny. And then Robocop slowly walks down the aisle, and uh, it actually reminded me of. Um, do you ever see uh, Austin Powers, where um, where the guy is being uh, run over by the uh, 
by the by the, by the steamroller. By the yeah. steamroller. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> How long did Robocop take to walk down the aisle? Um, and then he gets to the cage and he bends the bars of the cage. That such is his strength. This breaks Sting out. The horseman can't believe it and take off. And I've just written in my notes, this is the lamest shit in wrestling history. What the fuck is this? I mean, say what you want about the gobbledygooker, but they didn't have uh, Ted DiBiase or someone coming out and trying to feign fear when he came, when he came out to the ring. You know? Oh, my God. Like, how bad did the bars look? What were they made out of? Like, oh, yeah, they, I, I wish they'd have shown a close-up of Cornette in that cage, because, I mean, surely, I mean, them things were flopping all over the place when they locked Sting in there. Sid ends up giving a punch to the cage, which makes no sense. Sting's already in the cage. And then, yeah, like, Robocop almost looks like he tripped uh, at one point, which would have been... <laughs> Just the icing on the cake if he'd a trip coming out there. But he takes, you know, five minutes to get down there. And then all of a sudden the horsemen, you know, finally realize who he is. Like they couldn't hear them, you know, the crowd or see him make his long uh, soiree down to the arena. He gets the door out. Now we'll give Sting credit when he takes the door out and Sting comes out all excitable. Uh, that's 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 a pretty cool moment, but yeah, then Ollie retreats the troops, and it's just probably some of the worst uh, some of the worst wrestling stuff you'll see for your top heel stable to absolutely just take their ball and go home against a RoboCop one time attraction. Yeah, there's actually there's actually a reason why they just backed off. Orion, Orion Pictures wanted Robo wanted the Horsemen to bump for him. And WCW book, WCW bookers to their credit said no way, and they just had him. That's why they just backed off instead. That was um, a, yeah. Now, in fairness to Robocop, he is a robot, so he can't walk any faster. Um, but um, just I did, punch your way through that plastic gear he was wearing and just break through it. I think Sid could have done that. I I really think this looked like uh, it made Sid look in particular look really weak at this point, as he he just looked a bit sh- like sheepish you know well yeah i mean in the promos they talk about him like being the guy they bring in to neutralize robocop and yeah he's like just in the background and retreats with the rest of them so i I mean i don't know i'm almost saying if you commit that much to the angle and bringing him in maybe sid should i don't know i mean sid taking a bump from him sounds ridiculous too but I will draw one positive from all of this, though. I do like the idea of using the cage. From the, I, lo- I love it when something from the previous match is used in a different context. Like, or I, I love, like, I always talk about that bit where uh, uh, DBRC is at WrestleMania 6. He's still, like, lying, out, l- lying around, yeah. and uh, he beats. I, I just like, you don't see it too often, and this was one of those times. So that's my only little positive. I, I wanted to mention that during Morton's promo, where he... We, focuses on a bunch of other issues he throws out a challenge to the tag title winners then he talks about the horsemen and that's the type of thing that uh you didn't really see in the wwf at this time because everyone was sort of in their own little world do you think they might have stole this from wrestlemania 6 because that you know it just happened a month before um where they stole that kind of continuity uh, i honestly i think it's such a small thing that uh, I'd be surprised if anybody else noticed it, apart from us, apart from the likes of uh, likes of us, to be honest. Um, yeah. um, 
But yeah, I doubt it very much, uh, considering you know that these are the people who think the Robocop is a good idea. I'm not sure how much attention. Yeah, it's kind of coincidental though, because I can't think of too many examples like that in wrestling. And I mean, yeah, you have two two probably of the more obvious ones right here within a month of each other. So, uh, well, what happens? Okay, I couldn't believe it, but I was actually grateful. Yeah. I was grateful to see the junkyard dog back. <laughs> uh, at least he's a wrestler, right? Um, Tony Schiavone's with him, and he cuts uh, one of his uh, classic, incomprehensible. Uh, he's been to Puerto Rico and Japan, but now he's back in WCW. He's looking at the Horseman. He's looking at Mean Mark Callis and uh, almost everyone else here. Every dog needs a bone. Um, and then, uh, quite a funny moment. His old, uh, one of his old adversaries, Jim Cornette, crashes in, um, and he says that this is well. Speaking of, uh, you know, things overlapping, he says this is meant to be the time that the Midnight's are celebrating their title win, and um, he asks, like, you know, when we've been winning titles, where have you been, Junkyard Dog? And he he mentions this address in Louisiana, and um, Jim Cornette clocks that it's his mother's house. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's in Kentucky. Yeah, that, that, that's fucking creepy. <laughs> Why the hell does JYD know Cornette's mama's house? I mean, I like the line where he says, that's your my mama's house, and then JYD says, yeah, because I'm your daddy or whatever, but... <laughs> But that is that is very strange, and I don't understand why JYD would know uh, Cornette's mom's house. Yeah, well, they go back a long way, you know. Um, Every dog needs a bone to chew on. Okay. <laughs> oh, <yes>. <laughs> <laughs> um, in the in the melter, there's an interesting note where he says, um, "Junk junk food dog weighing a slim, trim buddy rose like 323 pounds," <laughs> <laughs> and um, he said people didn't boo JFD. Although I noticed quite a few people shaking their heads. Even among the blacks, there was no major reaction. And people uh, were stunned by seeing how, how big can, the guy how got. Meltzer was Meltzer here? Was he live for this? He, he, he took a head count of every black person <laughs> in the crowd to see them. Uh, I, I think this is a personal vendetta by Meltzer. Oh my God. I, I, I thought the crowd. I thought the crowd was reasonably happy about seeing J. Oh. <laughs> um, I liked uh, JYD's line at the end here. That's why I stopped school because I don't like recess. So uh, oh, there we are. Um, yeah. main, main event of next uh, Super Show part. <laughs> Get ready. What, Buddy Rose versus uh, Junkyard Dog, or oh, Junkyard Dog versus Ric Flair? <laughs> right. Oh. Oh. Yes. Uh, yeah. I'm. I'm waiting for it. Um, I quite like to see uh, Junkyard Dog versus Meltzer, to be honest. He, um, <laughs> um, okay. Um, now, unusual um, corporal punishment match as the Rock and Roll Express come out, managed by an actual jukebox. Whose idea was they come out with an, come out with an actual jukebox, like 1950s era jukebox, uh, taking on the fabulous Freebirds. And uh, this is a kind of an 80s dream match, sort of, isn't it? You know? Yeah, uh, yeah, you can see that. Take Garvin out and put Gordy in, yeah. 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 Um, well, uh, Peter, what did you think of... Uh, I mean, the stipulation here is that both guys have um, uh, kind of whips, bull whips, right? Um, and there's, there's quite an amazing moment earlier on where uh, Morton swings the strap around, and then we get... Uh, Jim Ross and Bob Cotter reminisce about how their daddies used to whip them as kids. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
And Ross says that he learned not to play hooky uh, from school from a young age. It's like it's really weird how they're Some kind sort of, of group therapy session going on. <laughs> they're a kind spontaneous of, yeah. therapy session. Yeah, but between between that and uh, the story that Ross has told on Steve Austin's podcast about his dad like actually drowning dogs, I'm kind of concerned about <laughs> his father a little bit. He was abused as a kid, basically. I mean, yeah, yeah, <laughs> it's, it's, some, yeah. something happened there, but yeah. So um, as se- what seems to be a recurring theme for this show is that there is a backstory to this match that in some ways is more interesting than, mat- than the match itself. Um, David Crockett was the man in charge of obtaining the leather straps for this match. Um, so logically enough, he went to uh, some sort of S&M sex shop and procured two cat nine tails uh, that uh, Dominatrix might carry. And, use- and those would be the straps used in the match. Uh, hold on. Did you say David Crockett? David yes, Crockett. David Crockett was around in 1990. He, yes. He's around. He's he's get when you get to the debut of the Shockmaster, he plays a role in that as well. Shit, I have so. to. I have to see yeah. this stuff. I have to see it. I have to see it. He he. Well, he's not on television. He's just oh. he's just in a backstage role, and he it's, it's, it's just what you don't see him go out and buy the bull whips or anything. No, no, oh, no. no. I'm sorry, no. This is this is real life. This is not a this is not a film segment. All oh, right. But, okay. Uh, sorry. Um, yeah, it's, but still, it's it's still pretty funny that he a cat of nine tails to use instead of just no one just wear a belt to the to the That's arena that night. Just use that. <laughs> so what what well what that means is we get a conventional match out of this. I guess the cat of nine tails either they legitimately hurt or they just don't look that good uh, being used, so they barely use them. So we get a conventional tag match instead, and the match is probably better for it because otherwise it'd just be just four guys whipping each other, which has sort of a limited shelf life uh, without a match to go with it. So I'd, get... I'd, I'd, I'd pay to see Jimmy Garvin whipped at this point. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, Hayes is pretty decent here. I mean, he throws some great left-hand punches like he always does. Um, Garvin, uh, a little bit less serviceable here. Um, and Ricky Morton's Ricky Morton, so this is going to be pretty decent just uh, just by him showing up falling out of bed and um chad touched on this and this is going to be yet another recurring theme but the finish to this is almost exactly the same as in the six-man tag um hayes hits gibson with a ddt and he sets him up for another one but he doesn't realize morton's the legal man morton comes off the top with a sunset flip which is just like hawk coming off the top with a clothesline um Again, this is another stipulation, just like the hair versus hair match that didn't go anywhere. But this is a pretty perfectly decent match. Yeah, Chad. A couple. First, I love I love the sex whip story. That's that's one of my favorite like real life wrestling stories that happens. Honestly, I would if there's like if somebody had taken like a a video camera and followed. You know, you have that shopping with him. I love shopping with David Crockett. Would be my favorite thing in the world. I don't. I don't know where he was at in Washington D.C. where they apparently like have a sex shop, but not a clothing store. I mean, I can't think of many like areas. I mean, you know, if they have that, but not the other. Anyway, also when the uh, Rock and Roll Express come out with the jukebox on the platform at one point, somebody grabs Ricky Morton and he almost wipes out on the thing and falls, and then the platform gets. Uh, Earned sideways, so uh, this is this is quite a string of just disastrous things going on. The actual match, though, if if they hadn't had the stipulation, 
I'm I'm never a huge fan of matches that have a stipulation and it feels like they're not used even in a case like this where um you know it probably was for the better for them to just work a traditional tag team match if they were going 18 minutes. Uh, Hayes in this match I thought looked better though than we'd seen him in quite a while where he seemed to really be working hard his punches looked great uh, Garvin we didn't get I don't think Garvin was near as bad as he was in the Wrestle War 90 match actually only a couple of yeah yeah yeahs so uh, that was an improvement punches yeah, yeah, so that was an improvement over his previous effort. I also like the moment right in the beginning where Garvin does a strut and Ricky Martin, uh, Ricky Martin, Ricky Morton uh, <laughs> shadows him, and uh, Garvin looks a bit perturbed at that, which uh, was a pretty good facial reaction. I mean, this match is fine, but uh, I don't, I don't think it's. Yeah, I mean, good would be kind of generous to me. Meltzer goes two and three quarters. That seems fair. Mm. I, I went two, two and a half, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I'm all right. I, I, not, I not, not one for a Best of Rock and Roll Express comp, I don't think. I, I thought it was surprisingly heated, this match. Uh, like, I could, given what the Freebirds have been like, I, I thought, um, you know, I enjoyed it quite a bit. I mean, I guess it's the expectation thing that you mentioned again, uh, Peter. I was expecting nothing, and Hayes was pretty fired up, as you mentioned. I actually think Hayes has still got quite a bit to offer at this stage. Um, but my note is that Garvin has just done a done as a worker. Like I, I thought he did his best to bring this match down, to be honest. Um, uh, like he wasn't quite as bad, like you mentioned, Chad. But he, he was still he's still pretty. When when um, they first put the whips away, uh, Garvin's first port of call is to go into like a headlock, you know. Um, and yeah. even even Coddle mentioned on commentary. He's surprised that they haven't made more use of the straps. Um, so when the commentator is pointing it out, it, it becomes noticeable. So, I mean, if you were going to go into a section where you weren't going to use the whips, he should have done something better than a rest hold at that point, in my view. Um, but surprisingly, I'd go. I'd be tempted to even push it into a three myself. Um, yeah. um, okay, so Doug, randomly, Doug Furness oh, okay. is with Tony yeah. Schiavone oh. now. Um, and there's actually a little story here. Apparently, he was brought in because um, there was talk that Tom Zenk may not be able to make the show for some reason, and Finesse uh, F- was going to be the, the uh, backup plan. Um, but obviously, I would have liked to have seen that, actually. Yeah, I was going to say, Furnace and Pillman in that <laughs> match would have been interesting to watch. Yeah, no, apparently, I mean, obviously nobody knew who he was, and there wasn't much ovation for him here, um, but it was weird. <laughs> One of the weirder sex, you know, random. Um, right. I don't think he's much as a promo. Um, and now, semi-main event time. Uh, yet another, there's been a lot of tag matches on this uh, show. Uh, this is, what, the fourth, fifth tag match? Steiner, uh, yeah, yeah. Steiner Brothers taking on Doom. Um, and um, now, to your point, Peter, Jim Ross almost explodes uh, because <laughs> the, with both the Steiners and Ron Simmons in this match, we get, you know, pages and pages of college background trivia here. Um, did you take any of it down? I can't remember much of it. but uh... Yes, I did, because <laughs> Ross was just absolutely out of control here. And this is this is Ross that is most annoying, frankly. He talks about Butch Reed being an NAIA All-American. Now you have the NCAA, which is the big college football 
organization. The NAIA is sort of if the NCAA is the premier league, the NAIA is like the you know the Isthmus Straight League or something <laughs> like that. It doesn't do anybody any good to talk about how Reed is a <laughs> all American at this at such a low level of football and. Uh, the, the, this is just Ross just masturbating with his mouth rather than trying to get people over, frankly, when he talks about stuff like that. <laughs> and um, and then, then then we have another spot at the beginning where uh, Rick rips off Teddy. Teddy Long comes out with a do-rag after his match, and Rick rips it off. And again, Long for the second time has to sell like it's the most embarrassing thing in history. And it just it doesn't work because he doesn't look any different. You think even backstage, if they couldn't, if he couldn't cut his hair in the ring, they could take him backstage and shave it later, like they did with uh, Adrian Adonis, to make him completely bald. But they didn't even do that. Yeah, it would actually improve his look. That's the yeah. ironic thing. Teddy Long with a completely bald head would be better than his look here. <laughs> um, any uh, any thoughts on this match, uh, Peter? Uh, yeah, it's it's uh, really good. Um, it's. Like I said, um, the Signers aren't the most uh, deep tag team in history. Um, mostly it's just going to be spots. But when they hit the spots, and they mostly do that here, and they work nice and stiff, it's just four you know big beefy guys beating the shit out of each other, basically. Um, yeah, it, it works for me. Um, and it, it goes to show just how far ahead of the Road Warriors the Steiners were at this point. They had bombs, but uh, they can they're bumping better, working harder. And uh, Doom is, um, they can throw bombs, they can keep up with the signers on that front, but they're also really good, I thought, at um, little quick punches and sort of in-between attacks, I guess, for lack of a better term, when they they can knock uh, one guy down with a shoulder block, and then they can just take a few kicks or forearms at him while they're on the ground, which is sort of, I think, sort of a lost art these days, Uh, and Doom was pretty good at it. And Doom is not a team that the signers can just overwhelm and throw around at will uh they if they don't want to bump or take those crazy suplexes they don't have to so uh doom sort of forces them into a more even-handed match than you might get out of some signers matches chad do you agree with that yeah uh i've watched this match a couple times the uh past few months first time i watched it i liked it but I guess sort of the, some of the sloppiness got in my way a little bit, but this match, I really, uh, this time I really enjoyed it. I thought, uh, as far as a big kind of Steiner's protocol bomb throwing type match, uh, as I've watched a couple of their, I guess, more highly touted match, both the, uh, Starcade 1991 Japan match and the, uh, the Super Brawl one tag match. I think this is my favorite uh, kind of bomb throwing type match that they had. I, I do think I liked the, this match better than both of those uh, personally. And I thought Doom added a lot, looked the best they had uh, here, and then uh, end up winning the tag titles at the end. So they kind of become the team here. Uh, but but the bomb throwing was good, stiff shots. Uh, this is a lot of fun to watch as a match. Yeah, well, I, I was uh, expecting to be the high vote on this, and I still might be the high vote, but I love this match. Um, I, I, lo- I loved it when I watched it years ago, and I loved it again watching it uh, last night. Um, <clears throat> just, to, I mean, what can you say? Lots of big bombs, two big power teams doing big power moves. What's there not to like? Um, and uh, say what you want about steroids. It makes a match like this look uh, even better. <laughs> um, huh. I, 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 in, uh, no, I enjoyed it a lot. Um and I'm just going to check Meltzer's rating. Um, 
Meltzer goes, oh, what does he go? Three and a half, three and a quarter for this. Bit stingy. I, that I, seems very yeah. low, surprisingly. Um, I go as high as four for this, and I'd be tempted to go even higher. So, I, I, am I still the high vote, or would you would you go that high? I, I had three and three quarters, so high vote, yeah. but not terribly high vote. And I agree with uh, with Pete because I do have still the Midnight Express for me, just uh, a smidge ahead of this one. Yeah, I mean, th- this is a, I mean, not a huge amount of psychology, but you know, what do you want out of the Doom versus the Steiners? You know, it's, it's everything you want. There's a there's a moment I loved. Uh, there's a moment in the match where the Steiners are just giving Doom like the big Steiner lines, and I just think, yeah, I love the high high impact get in <laughs> so good um final match then main event time rick flair versus lex luger in a cage and it's the big T- tbs star cage um and just before going into this i really enjoyed this little moment where the ref mike atkins who's come out of nowhere in 1990 i don't know where mike atkins has come from um he wants to check woman um, and we get some like really pervy comments from Ross and Coddle. Yeah. <laughs> that's, yeah. that's, yeah. not, that's not a bad job, etc. Um, but uh, he um, he checks woman and he finds a foreign object. And uh, I thought that was really awesome. I've never seen that spot before where they, they actually find the foreign object before they go in. And um, Flair is like, no, she's fine. Leave her, leave her. And, uh, it looked like a joint. I don't know what the hell that was, but it looked like a marijuana joint rolled up. Well, I had, I had a different idea, but I had, let's, uh, let's keep this, um, you know, PG-13. Here. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, Chad, uh, we've, uh, we've seen this matchup several uh, times. Um, and, uh, well, I guess this is the latest. Capital Combat. Cage match. Yeah, this this uh, this match to me is one of the more interesting matches to analyze because I think there's a lot uh, against it, and then just the uh, the way that it's still a good match I think is to kind of overcome all that is sort of amazing. Uh, Luger was legitimately hospitalized. He, he looks miserable. I mean, when he comes out to the ring, he looks very miserable. He tells the cameraman to get the fuck out of his way. Uh, <laughs> no nonsense tonight. Uh, there's the terrible cage. I hate this cage. It's very tough to kind of get a sense of the enclosed violence within this cage, especially in this one because woman is just standing on the outside. Yeah, I mean, why she's was not, she allowed in the cage to begin with? Yeah, yeah, like she's not even on the outside of the cage. She's just on the apron inside the cage, which makes the cage seem fairly pointless uh, overall. But but the match itself, I think of this kind of TBS style cage, the big boy cage, whatever you want to call it, Thunderdome. This is the best use of it. Uh, we get a lot of climbing and use of it. Flair absolutely hits a gusher and is bleeding profusely flair in this match. I thought was just very good getting his ass kicked. And then once he starts going on the attack with the torture rack, he is just kind of a madman going after the leg, kind of reminiscent of uh, Starcade 1988 between these two. Uh, so I, so I like the match a good deal. Uh, it's probably, I mean, it's 
on the low end of Flair versus Luger. I think they've had probably at least uh, at least probably three matches better than this one that we've seen, and then maybe even the uh, I think the May fifth match they had might actually be better than this one. But but it's 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 a good match, and then the finish is. The finish. What can what can you say about the finish? The finish is what it is. So the the horsemen kind of come out, and then get scurried away by El Gigante, <laughs> uh, making his triumphant appearance on one of these shows, and Sting and uh, El Gigante is just standing there. We get our first glimpse of Oli being absolutely terrified at El Gigante and running away. <laughs> Uh, but but then somehow somebody has control of the cage, which uh, turns out to be Oli, I guess, and uh, he he raises it up just a little bit, allowing Barry Windham to come in and uh, clip Lex Luger, giving uh, Flair the victory. So probably uh, a really poor. I, I can kind of see what they were going for, but uh, but it does feel like now Luger is choked again. El Gigante and Sting are sort of just standing there, picking their nose while this happens. And, and what's uh, Robocop do- doing in the back? Yeah, Robocop's still tending to Gordon Sully's body. Uh, <laughs> we, we, we do get this crazed uh, awesome player promo at the end, walking down the aisle. Uh, with bloody flare with the belt, but uh, but it, this seemed like a mess at the end. Yeah, why bring out? What was he wearing? A Roman like centurion costume? Uh, he was wearing some weird uh, costume here, but it makes no sense for him to be the one coming out. Why wouldn't Robocop come back out? Especially when he's got the one skill you need here. He can break into the cage. <laughs> yeah, I didn't even think about that. That that's, is absolutely dumb. So yeah, that, that's even stupider when you think yeah. about it that way. <laughs> right. Well, uh, P- Peter, uh, what do yeah, you? This, this, this is maybe the most the preeminent example of a promotion booking itself into a corner because it was decided that Flair couldn't lose the title. It was decided that Luger couldn't lose because he'd lost enough and choked enough. So you book these two in a cage match. Um, and was the only way out of it is to book a cage match that ends in a disqualification, which it just is the it's the one of the dumbest things I've ever envisioned. Um, the, the, uh, growing up in the WWF, where cage matches were bloody brawls, and if they were tag matches, they worked tornado style. I was just never got used to the uh, NWA style where tag matches were worked as tag matches in a cage and pinfalls and stuff like that. It's just the way. It's just my experience growing up watching. So to even on top of that, have a cage match ended a disqualification. Uh, if I had seen this live at the time, I would have just, I would never would have watched an NWA show again. Um, it was just that much of a ripoff. Yeah. yeah the, the mess with the, the horseman and then you have sting coming out. Sting can't do anything other than throw punches because his knees still hurt. So you got sting beating the crap out of Ole Anderson Arn can't do anything because he's hurt. So you have Sting beating up Ole Anderson, and Sid is just standing there. And he can't do anything because he can't attack Sting because Sting can't bump for him. And so it, the whole uh, Eligante probably doesn't know how to work yet. So that's all, man. <laughs> yet? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm like, later. <laughs> Sorry. I'm like, <laughs> 
he hadn't okay. he hadn't learned psychology and bumping from working with Flair all those house show runs. Um, <laughs> the one good thing I'll say about the ending is that when that once they get trapped inside the cage with Luger, the beatdown is very good, and Ross and Cottle are just losing it on commentary, and it's it's a very dramatic scenario with uh, Ole controlling the cage and the baby face is not able to get in, and it leads to one of my favorite Ross calls of all time, where he says, "Patch me through to security, get the police over there, and get Ole Anderson away from the switch." Which, out of context, and just knowing that they're in an armory, you think Ole was some sort of Middle Eastern terrorist with a bomb <laughs> or something. But it's it was a great dramatic over the top Ross call. Well, what happened here? Almost oh, redeems it. Oh, 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 they actually managed to get the actual switch for the cage to yes. raise it a little bit for the that's horseman to sneak sport. in. Yes. That's, a, that's, a, that's really cool. Um, it is. It's cool. It's just I, I wish it would come after the match instead so of as the finish. Was, was Barry Windham hiding under the ring for the entire pay-per-view? No, he, he runs out. Um, he run. You see him run out and slip under the cage when Oli raises it. He comes right, up. okay. I, I, I must have missed that. Um, yeah, for the match itself, I mean, I think, uh, let's see what Mel to give it here. I think he goes um, three and uh, three and a half. And I'm more or less the same three and a half. Um, I just think we've seen these guys so many times now, um, you know, that and this match doesn't really have much to distinguish it from all of the others despite the fact that's in a it's in a cage um luger's working with the injury as we know and there's all this mess at the end three and a half seems fair to me chad yeah, yeah i agree with that um i will say though uh that despite all of the mess i love the mental insane fired up post-match promo from a absolute psycho version of rick yeah. flair uh one of my all-time favorite flair promos uh he's just so ecstatic to still be the champ I, I love the image of the player with these bug eyes and blood covering his face, just and still <laughs> happy as hell because he's still got the title. I'd, I'd actually put this uh, post-match promo up there with his, you know, with this with the savage one, you know, the famous savage. Yeah. Uh, I, I thought this is every bit as good as that. He's just uh, he's just insane. Um, but Tony Schiavone, is Tony Schiavone down there? Tony Schiavone, can you hear me? Yes, I can, Jim Ross. And here we are. He is still the world. What is it? Look at it. Come to the end then. Uh, overall, quite an enjoyable show, despite a lot of nonsense uh, for me. Uh, do you all agree with that? Yeah, I mean, to, to me, it's a show that has three really good matches, and then a couple that you could argue are either good or you know not bad. And as far as in ring, I mean, the only terrible match was the uh, haircut match, which is only two minutes. <laughs> so in ring wise, this is. Uh, you know, not a bad pay-per-view at all, but it's just surrounded by a lot of crap and uh, weird decisions. So it's it's a very interesting show to watch. 
So let's uh, match of the night. We may get a split decision here. Uh, I think we know which way you're going, Chad. Yeah, I'm gonna go with the uh, I'm gonna go with the Midnight's versus Pillman and Zinc match, but I I don't think that either uh, Doom versus the Steiners or the, even the Flair Luger Cage match, if you like that. I know. Uh, real quickly, our uh, our friend Matt. Uh, reviewed this show recently and he gave that cage match uh, four and a quarter stars so wow. he was a big fan of it or he either gave it four or four and a quarter I think he either ranked it right at I think he may have only gave it four but he ranked it the same as the Wrestle War match um, what, what, what was his reasoning there did you uh, without going into it I mean, well, he uh, he what he's been doing now is he's uh, been actually doing sort of like cliff notes versions of just his he watches the show and then gives his ratings and then right. he comes back and writes on it. So he didn't write his description on that, but uh, I'll, I'll actually uh, PM him and ask him about that and we'll bring his comments for the next show. But I mean, so, I know he liked both the matches, though, a good deal. Right. OK, Uh Match of the night for you, uh, Peter. I'm gonna go with Doom and the Steiners. Yeah, me too. I can't. Yeah. I can't look beyond that. And I, uh, I may even if I gave quarter stars, um, I, I may even be tempted up into four and a quarter, uh, for that. It's hovering between my B plus and A minus rating, Chad. So, <laughs> uh, yeah, I think so. Okay, so MVP, quite difficult. I can't. I don't actually have anyone in mind myself, but Peter. Yeah, the, the, that was the same for me. No one really stood out as a star-making performance. I, I wrote down Ric Flair, but now, now that we've gone over this, I'm not really sure about that. Um, I'm tempted to give it to Luger because he worked very well considering the circumstances where we probably should not have been working at all. Uh, Pillman looked really good. I, I'm going to have to hold it with Luger because he had every reason to just completely half-ass it, and uh, he didn't at all. He worked pretty hard. Chad? Yeah, I think this is a, a very interesting MVP race because there was a lot of good performances, or very good performances, actually. Flair, Luger, uh, even Rick Steiner is someone I wouldn't be opposed to giving this to. And then uh, Brian Pillman was also good, too. But uh, the person I'm going to give it to is Bobby Eaton, uh, just because I think, uh, you know, like I said, I think the Midnight Express have a lot of great control segments, but I just thought Bobby Eaton's portions in that tag match was uh, some of the best I, we've seen. I mean, I really enjoyed it and thought he had like a little extra oomph on a lot of his moves that he did. He was going to be my choice too, uh, uh, Eaton. I th- uh, I'm going to go with Bobby Eaton too. I just think um, like the Alabama Jam, some of the, the Tilt-A-Whirl Backbreaker, you know, cool. <laughs> um yeah, Bob Eaton for me. So that brings us to the Billy Graham Award, and there's a there's so many people to choose from. It's unreal. <laughs> Jay, Jay Tapper, the the jukebox, <laughs> Robocop, you know, Teddy Long. <laughs> um, for my Billy Graham, I'm actually going to go with somebody that performed in ring. Uh, I mean, just because. I, I'm just going to do that. And uh, I'm going to pick the Samoan Savage. And my reasoning for that is I do think if he was not in that match, if someone else was in that match, that would have been uh, a marginally better match. I thought he actively drug that match down with his rest holes, his kind of generic stalling and everything he brought to the table there. 
pizza? RoboCop. Uh, I don't know. I, I I can't give it to anyone else, frankly. Uh, just bad execution, bad idea. Uh, just makes no sense if you think about it for five minutes. Why he wasn't out there during the main event? Uh, yeah. I mean, Al Giante was on the card as well. <laughs> and um, yet, and yet, he was not the worst performer. I mean, he was the not card. the worst. Uh, that's pretty amazing. I can't give it to RoboCop because um, I mean, to be fair. That is Robocop, right? I mean, the, the idea is horrible, but uh, like him walking down slowly and stuff, that if you've ever seen Robocop, that's what he's like. So, uh, I mean, as far as his performance went, he did he played the role that it was asked of him, um, even if it wasn't the main, the proper actor. Um, I think the Samoan Savage, uh, who's, who's, this may be, he may have even overtaken Billy Graham at this point, Chad. He's had a lot of uh, worse performances. Samoan Savage for me. Yeah, he's had a rough go for somebody that, uh, like, Martin really loves his run as the Islander. You know, Tama, he's, he's been dreadful. No, he, he's a different worker at this point. He's put on several, several uh, dozens of pounds, and, uh, yeah, he's not good at this point. <laughs> um, okay, well, we've, where are we going after this, uh, Chad? Clash, Clash we- 11? Yeah, we have Clash 11, which uh, if you look at Clash, it's kind of sad what happens to the Clashes. I do think up to this point, the Clashes have been uh, pretty important and integral. Clash 11 is not that bad of a show on paper, but it does really seem like kind of the changing of the tide where the Clashes were sort of just another, I guess, a very good TV show instead of really having like a super card feel to them. And then uh, our next pay-per-view will be uh, Great American Bash 1990, and we'll have Derek Cornette on there. And he does uh, he actually does fantasy wrestling as a tie-in to all the fantasy wrestling we talk about. He's been doing his own promotion for uh, around five years now, uh, week in, week out. So uh, it'll be cool to talk to him. He's a big old-school NWA fan. Great. Well, I'd, I'd love to hear his thoughts on uh, how he thought that we, we did on our uh on our, our efforts uh i think my um my booking on on reflection was uh not not what it could have been <laughs> i think you're drafting picking andre in the fourth round <laughs> no well, I, I tell you i'm that's the only promotion you'll ever see those four guys in the same team yeah, so. <laughs> here we go <laughs> <laughs> all right well peter it's been fun thank you very much thank you. welcome thank uh, you for having me back at super brawl three next time you'll see you right i believe so yes Okay. He may make an appearance before then. Yeah. We'll see. <laughs> All right. some That's a ways shows. off. That is a ways off. Yeah, there's some 92 shows that need filled. So. Yeah, and I do that Kip Frey era, which I'm uh, all over. I love that yeah. period. All right, well, until next time, so long for now. See you. Fans, for all of us here at WCW Center Stage, for Cowboy Bill Watts and the American Dream Dusty Rhodes, I'm Jim Ross saying good night, everybody.